It's time for Twig this week in Google. Jeff's here. Ant's here. Stacy has the week up, but we found a great replacement. Attorney Kathy Gellis was actually in the courtroom yesterday during oral arguments. The Supreme Court case, Google versus Gonzalez. The future of the Internet hangs in the balance. We'll get her analysis and a lot more next on This Week in Google. Podcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. This is Twig. This Week in Google, episode 704, recorded Wednesday, February 22nd, 2023, ensconced in felt. This Week in Google is brought to you by HPE GreenLake, orchestrated by the experts at CDW, who can help you consolidate and manage all your data in one flexible edge-to-cloud platform to scale and innovate. Learn more at cdw.com. Slash HPE. Thanks for listening to this show as an ad-supported network. We are always looking for new partners with products and services that will benefit our qualified audience. Are you ready to grow your business? Reach out to advertise at twit.tv and launch your campaign now. It's time for Twig This Week in Google, the show we cover the latest news from Google. This time it's actually going to have some Google news in it. Stacy has the day off, but we are really fortunate to be able to get Catherine R. Gellis Esquire in studio. Kathy Gellis, you've seen her write for Tech Dirt. She is uh, an attorney that practices uh, law in the digital age in Northern California. And it's so great to have you, Kathy, because yesterday she was in the Supreme Court, in the chambers, listening to the oral arguments in Gonzalez versus Google. Kathy, welcome. So glad we could get you on. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Mike Masnick uh, said, I'm going to, I'm going to write about this, but I'll wait until Kathy really waves in with the, with the real deal. We're going to ask you about those oral arguments, but first let's say hi to uh, the rest of our panel. Of course, the fabulous Aunt Pruitt from hands-on photography and our community manager at, uh, Hello, at uh, club twit. Hello, aunt. And of course, Leonard Tao, professor of journalistic Blah, blah, blah. And blah, blah, blah. Yada, yada, yada. <laughs> yada, yada, yada. The card's way over there. I can't reach Where's it. Where's the so. cue card? <laughs> it's okay. It's there right. it is. It's all right. The Leonard Tao Professor for Journalistic Innovation at the Craig Nilmark Graduate School of Journalism at the City University of New York. Hello, Mr. No, no theme? No, no, no Craig Please, song? please. Can I? No. Just <laughs> ask your indulgence. We're having a little bit of trouble here it in the would, studio today. come in. 40 decibels over your own just, feed. Let's just not push it. Definitely you. <laughs> Jeff, we're doing the show Unplugged. Yeah, oh, yeah. Ooh, I like it. Call. It's time good for call. Twig Unplugged. So, Kathy, <laughs> many think that yesterday was one of the most momentous days in the history of the Internet. Of course, the Supreme Court had oral arguments on Gonzalez versus Google. This was the case. Uh, sad story, uh, the Gonzalez family filed against Google saying that ISIS recruitment videos on YouTube, uh, well, they don't even say it was the cause of their daughter's death in a 2015 terrorist uh, uh, mass killing in uh, Paris, but they say it's bad anyway. And uh, so it's a, it seemed to me it's a bad case on the face of it because they're not, there's no connection between those videos and their daughter's death. And I'm very sorry for their daughter's death. Uh, but they went after Google uh, anyway. 
there is another case that was heard today, similar but not the same. Yesterday's case uh, really was about Section 230. Today's case uh, included Twitter and I think Facebook as well as Google. Um, but was I am not sure if uh, if they were official petitioners, okay. but I, I may be wrong. Um, I don't remember the caption, but it's definitely Twitter that was pulling the weight. I believe you went to the oral arguments yesterday. You, did you not feel that today's were were as important, or were you just exhausted? Uh, it's it's, <laughs> it's the latter. It's an oddly arduous experience physically it's um i mean there was a lot of anxiety heading into it and me and all my colleagues were uh coping with great amounts of stress about uh, existential stress of what was going to happen and everything we work for and everything we care about was really hanging in the balance so going into that and then you have to wake up really really early to get online because you also you don't know how many people will be there and want to get in you don't know how many people they will let in I got to be on the special line for um, members of the Supreme Court bar. Uh, but even so, it was still unknown of how, like the last one I went to, the Andy Warhol case, um, they didn't let everybody in who was a Supreme Court bar member. And I didn't want to be like the last person who got left out. So I had to go early, standing around. Then you get brought into a different spot and you stand around some more and there's more standing and more sitting. So looking at it for this morning was sort of maybe I'll give it a miss and I'll take care of some other stuff and, um, and just listen in. Um, but on the other hand, the trade-off is it is definitely different to be in that room and see the justices as human beings and see their body language and see the way that they sort of look at each other and react to each other physically. It is definitely, there's something that is lost when you just put it into the sound that goes through the, the the radio or the live stream. So you just don't see them flipping the bird at each other as we hear the court is doing these days. I don't think actually that is something that has ever caught my eye on any of them that I've attended, <laughs> but um, they actually seem to They were quite They were quite collegial, I thought. Eyes? They are very collegial. I mean, it, there's a certain cognitive dissonance and there's going to be one that I'll end up talking about a little bit more, which is just to go a little spoilery. Uh, one of my favorite justices as this as either of these hearings unfolded is Justice Kavanaugh. Brett Kavanaugh and actually it, seemed uh, to know something about the Internet. It, right. In a very distinct way, um, he understood really important things where if I you know, got to write a memo of bullet points of dear justices, this is what you need to know, which is essentially what I did in writing an amicus you, brief. You wrote a brief for the first case that, for so. Gonzalez, yeah. I wrote one for the first case for Gonzalez, but I would have put a list of like, this is how you look at it. And his questions were articulating and understanding that was Maybe like, he read it. I, he I was also impressed. It. I also appreciated nice. uh, Justice Kagan saying these are not the nine greatest experts on, yeah. on the Internet. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, <that> was <laughs> uh, she funny. was at least humble. <laughs> so uh, but before we get into the details of the argument. Yeah. So there were two cases. Uh, the second was Twitter versus Temna. Uh, so Twitter was the plaintiff. Uh, or no, I don't know. Twenty was the defendant in the in this defendant. one. Uh, they were both the defendants, but it was reversed in terms of the petition for the certiorari. Um, okay, so Twitter asked case, for this one to go to the Supreme Court. Is that right? Twitter asked for this one, and it was okay. a contingent petition that basically said, "If you're going to take the other one, take this one ah. too." Um, and then, uh, but that's why Twitter was sort of the lead in this one, where it's Twitter versus Tamna. But for the other one, it's Gonzalez versus Google, because in that one, it was Gonzalez, Gonzalez that said, Dear Court, appealed. please look at it. Okay. So, yeah. uh, and the Twitter case, apparently, I've heard, is not quite as 
directly an assault on Section 230. Uh, Tamna is accusing Twitter of uh, promoting uh, Islamic terrorism by allowing tweets, basically, and retweets uh, on its site. Uh, but but the sex but the but the first case yesterday's case, uh, I guess the first question I would ask is why did the court agree to review either of these cases? Yeah, they're not yeah. great I cases. Think, I think the court is currently asking itself that very question. Um, it would and and I say that somewhat flippantly, but I think what we think is that there had been an appetite to take a section 230 case because we were seeing these and i'm forgetting i think they were concurrences not dissents or they were dissents against denial of certiorari so we had the malware bites case and then there was another case later where justice thomas wrote at least one of them i think alito may have written another one where these were things of like we have never considered section 230 and boy what a big deal we better make sure that this big monumental law is really doing things because there were complaints by people that they politically related to who had been complaining about, well, Section 230 is the bane of all the existence, and this is why all these people with these political views are getting censored, et cetera, et cetera. This isn't actually the case, but this was a why this is a, a view that is held by people that they politically agree with. So I, they were expressing an appetite of we should take a case. And then all of a sudden this case comes and it looks kind of provocative. It's got terrible optics. It's like big bad Google. Um out of nowhere, they took it. I mean, I think I think it really blindsided the community of lawyers that I'm operating within. We just didn't think this was a case that was going to go anywhere. Why, any why legs, was that? Is it because it's a weak case? It was a weak case. I think it was weak facially, and it was just one in the many cases. Right. There's there's these plaintiffs' lawyers who keep trying to terrible things happen. A terrorist has caused collateral damage to innocent people, and well, I guess. By their view, it's not collateral. But um, but then you, there's all these people who are like, well, somebody must be blamed. These terrorists were using the, inter- the Internet, so let's blame the Internet. So there's certain lawyers who kept bringing case after case and then losing for a variety of reasons. They kept losing. Some, I think, lost on 230 grounds. Some were losing on ATA grounds. Some were losing because just the complaints, like you have to have causation of the, the harm and the, and the consequence That's have key. some sort of link. But lawsuits are expensive so you know one of the points of 230 is that like the lawsuit goes away very quickly where it can't get to a point where you've really spent any real money to find out that you had no liability in the first place but somehow this case got escape velocity partly because the ninth circuit i think is getting very grumpy about 230 itself and is starting to kind of try to snip at it a little bit and cut its corners in ways that i think are not a good idea in this case i think they looked and said well precedent binds us to um, get rid of the Gonzalez uh, complaint because of Section 230, but they had like all this language about like, but we don't like that. That that doesn't seem even right. Justice Kavanaugh said yesterday, this is really a matter for Congress, not us. Well, so to to uh, my long winded answer to your question is this came. They took the case. They ended up taking both cases, but then I think a couple things happened. One, the cases themselves were weak. I think they noticed once they started reading them more closely. I think once the briefing came in, they noticed it more closely because the Gonzalez case has a problem where certiorari is granted, which is the Supreme Court review to say, we're going to look at this particular question of law. And they when they grant the case, they grant it with the question of what they're going to look at when they when they do this review. And when the petitioners filed their brief, they changed the question. And you're not supposed to do that. Oh. I mean, that's enough grounds to kick the case unto itself. 
But then the other thing that happened is a gazillion, and I'm rounding slightly, a gazillion amicus briefs came in. Including yours. Sides, but, <laughs> including mine, yeah. but particularly on the side of Google, where that the bulk of people talking about the parade of horrors that was going to happen if Section 230 got cut in some way, I think really impressed the court where they started uh-huh. to realize there was a there there. And maybe and I they did seem very with one possible exception, they seem generally well much better educated on the issues than I think we had expected. And I think that education may have shaped their views where they realized that more was at stake. And especially with a weak case that was weakly pled and weakly briefed and weakly argued, I think now they're like, wait, big things are at stake and we're going to topple a lot. We see what's at risk over this. So I think they're having second thoughts about having granted for Gonzalez and also peripherally so, also so with Kathy, the Tana case. Um, if, they, if they get together in their, in their club room, and say, oh, hey, we shouldn't have taken this. There's really no issues here. There's really nothing. Can they just issue like a, a, a one pager that says, never mind? Or do I, they now have to deal with much of what was argued? Um, I think they have choices. I don't know entirely technically what all the choices are. But on the other hand, they also have been making an awful lot as they up a awful lot as they uh, go on these days. So yeah. um, I think yeah. it'll be whatever they want to be. There's something that is referred to as a dig. Um, I've seen people refer to it. And I don't know the full acronym but it's basically improvidently granted is the problem where they're just gonna like set it <laughs> like aside we, so, we blew so it. that is a thing yeah so they could do that i mean i think they have options i think they could do that just blankly i don't know what that looks like but maybe it's a maybe it is a one-line order um they could just find in favor they could find in favor as a procurium and not write any language i suppose they could write language I don't I don't know if it's even worth guessing or even looking up past uh, Supreme Court process because they're going to do what they're going to do. But I think they do have options. And the idea that they could say oops and not render a decision in the case, I think I think is something that they could do. How how did Google do in the arguments? How did they do in the arguments? Yeah. there were a couple things I think they conceded that the compute that the community will not like. Um, I point people to Eric Goldman's blog and his objections to the Henderson case because Google said that they kind of liked the Henderson test. And even the justices were a little bit like, I think one of them actually said, are you sure? Um, so I'm not entirely sure that was the best uh, way to zig and zag. Um, I think the Google lawyer also had trouble connecting with Justice Jackson. Um, Justice Jackson, I think, did does not quite see the situation the way it needs to be seen yet. She and said several times Google's how confused argument, she was by the whole thing. <laughs> Which, well, and I'm concerned also, she said Section 230 is a narrow statute. And I'm sort of like, nah. well, I really wish you read my amicus brief. I have a whole section titled how it's a broad statute yeah. on purpose. So <laughs> let um, me like, read, please let read me just, my brief. I think it'll it'll educate you. Um, let me but, read. Let I me read they, Section 230 just so that it's very quick. It's as as uh, you've pointed out a bunch of times, uh, Jeff, it's 26 words uh, that uh, that changed the Internet. Key, the key section of it, yes. No provider or user of an interactive computer service shall be treated as the publisher or speaker of any information provided by another information content provider. So the, the point of this, and Ron Wyden wrote it, it, it kind of as an antidote to some of the features of the Communications Decency Act, but the point of it was twofold. One, you're not responsible, whether you're Twitter, Google, or 
Leo Laporte running an IRC for something somebody puts in that IRC. They're responsible, not you. You're not the publisher. Uh, and two, if I decide to moderate any of these or Google or Facebook or Twitter does, I am not liable for taking it down. Uh, and in fact, uh, I think uh, Ms. Blatt, the uh, attorney for Google, um, said, you you know, you're, if you throw overturn this, you've got two choices. Either the Internet's going to become this anodyne happy place where nobody says anything controversial or it's a hellscape because nobody can moderate and there's nothing in between. So this was quite yeah. a quite a, I think, brilliant, prudent uh, and I think very broad uh part of the code that really did make the internet a safer place for people like me and that was this is yeah. always the thing that irritated me is that everybody treated it like well we're going after google or twitter or facebook those guys actually could weather the loss of 230 much better than i could but i have yes. a, a, a forums i have chat i have a discord i have comments all of which i would suddenly be liable for and it would make you me have go ahead Relevant to the brief, you have a Mastodon server. Right. And so one of the key things about my amicus brief is one of the signatories is an admin of a Mastodon server. Because one of the things that's happened as this whole case was unfolding, a cert was granted, then Musk took over Twitter, and all of a sudden mm -hmm. you had the exodus. So Mastodon was becoming more and more prominent, used by more and more people, and the importance of having this alternative was getting more and more important over time. And it seemed to me that we should have that voice brought to bear to explain to the court that it isn't about Google. It is about individual people who are trying either as a small business or just for the benevolence of trying to serve their community, offering a vehicle so that other people can speak to each other online. Yeah, and I that, make, all I of make, that matters. I make no money on Mastodon, Discourse, our forums, uh, on uh, on our IRC. Those are all outbound. I pay for all those without any mm -hmm. monetization. Uh, and as a result, if I were suddenly uh, liable, so with the nice thing about 230, if somebody comes after me, I don't even... I, I think this is right, Kathy. I don't even have to defend it. The judge is going to say, no, no, they're protected by 230. That's dismissed, right? There's no. I mean, you have to do a little bit of lawyering to that. It's not quite as automatic. You have to plead it. But it should basically be that the judge says, there's nothing to go forward here. This is not a question. This is an easy thing. It's to pretty decide. automatic. And I, so could, bear, I could bear that burden. But if I have to suddenly have to defend everything, and believe me, there are plenty of people on the internet <laughs> who would file frivolous <laughs> lawsuits as, in yes. an attempt to bring us down, uh, if I had to defend every one of those, every decision, whether to moderate or not, uh, I'd be out of business. So I, I think we would preemptively shut everything down. It would, it would chill discourse on the internet. So. It would chill discourse. It also chills your expressive discourse. Yes. You are very similar to Mike Masnick, who has a business, and his business is to contribute to discourse, to get his own expression out there, and to make sure that other expression that he agrees with and support with can can get out there. But he's a so publisher, right? So he's liable as a publisher. 230 doesn't protect his opinion. No, not his directly. However, the point being is that some of these ancillary things where you're providing the forum for other people to speak is in line with furthering your own expressive interests too. That you as a person whose business is expressing yourself needs the ability to have these ancillary avenues for both to use your own speech to make sure that you know your shows can be tweeted and, and shared around but also that you can f nurture the community of your audience because you will make your 
business succeed by connecting with the audience and having the ability to host these forums is also helping you build your audience as an expressive entity, which the First Amendment protects and encourages and democracy needs people like you to tell people things and keep the discourse going. So there's First Amendment stuff everywhere you look with it. And Section 230 is all about making that meaningful and redeeming and vindicating those values. And it's such a shame that people keep missing it and interpreting it as something exactly opposite to that. I was going to ask you uh, if there was some type of middle ground with Section 230 uh, versus the people that are like, we need to just, just I think Mike Masnick put it best. If you split the baby, the baby still dies. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Actually, did, did he say, I'm looking at my brief right now. I, I think was that I in your brief? <laughs> I, some, I had some line like that in, in the, uh, he stole in the brief. it in um, his post today. Yeah. Mike is stealing my best material. I'll have to take this out with him. But Um, that's what, Ant, that's a great question because, in fact, I even said, well, because they had modified the complaint to say, well, it's the algorithm that's the problem. And I was saying, well, maybe they could just say no algorithmic recommendations in 230. We protected. Of course, Jeff spanked me hard on that. I'm still feeling it a little bit. And you you open-minded a uh, wise man that you are changed your mind about that. Oh, I'm, completely. I'm proud of you, Leo. So, so, Aunt, is that what you're thinking? That. Is no, like, the there's, time, is it possible you, you, to kind of uh, uh, slice this a little bit so that you, you have some more protection, but that 230 is still uh, intact? Yeah, but at the same time, our, our our leaders are also saying, "Hey, these big tech companies can't censor quote censor us either." So, where is the line that we're going to draw? Um, not there. Haven't. Not there because, (laughs) I mean, one of the things is that um, the way the ecosystem works, and let's look at Twitter and Mastodon as as an example of that. Mm -hmm. Um, So Musk owns Twitter and, okay, previously Musk didn't own Twitter. So Twitter was making decisions about who to allow to use Twitter and who not to. And these decisions, especially the ones that said go away, um, were not liked by the people who had to go away. You can, I can understand the, you know, the hurt feelings from that. So I don't want to poo-poo that, but Twitter could make those decisions. Now Twitter is owned by somebody else and he can make different decisions based on he wants who he wants to be associated with, just as Leo can make decisions with his Mastodon ad, uh, instance of who does he want and to I be associated with. And I do every because, day when I approve and or disapprove like, new users. And, and individual people can do this too. So for instance, if you've got a Facebook page and you make a Facebook post that people can comment on, and somebody like you, you've posted a picture of your kid. If somebody comes over and says your kid's ugly, you certainly want to be able to get rid of that comment and potentially block that user from coming back and commenting because that's not comfortable to you. And you can sort of understand the editorial freedom you have to be able to make that decision. Just Similarly, the opposite is true. If somebody comes and praises your kid, you wouldn't want any law to be able to compel you to have to take that comment down because that's your favorite thing. Oh, this is interesting. Just a little a side note. The ability to block somebody, which is integral to both Mastodon and Twitter, would that also be, uh, is that protected by 230? Would that also be at risk? My personal ability to block somebody on that site? If 230, 230 should operate. If 230 starts to get clipped, then it's unclear exactly how much devastation could follow because in theory it could be all of it. There's a lot of thought about, oh, we'll just make it a narrow snip here and there and no, that's why the the baby and anal- Mike and I are using the baby analogy because the whole point of that of the Solomon story is that 
there are certain things where the compromise is impossible. Neither party was so willing is, to split the baby. That was brilliant. Solomon's decision yeah. was brilliant, right? And, so and, Leo and the whole ask- thing is that you can't have that split because I think what the way I phrased it in the brief was it would be fatal to the purpose of what you're trying yes, to do. Right. The problem with if you're a platform who's going to potentially be sued for all of the gazillions of bits of user provided information you have, even one of those lawsuits, even if it's a mm-hmm. non-meritorious lawsuit where you would win, can wipe you out. And certainly if you've got more than one, then you don't stand a chance. So you want to avoid the lawsuit because you can't afford the lawyers. The problem with clipping away at Section 230 is that if all of a sudden you're having to spend your money deciding whether Section 230 applies to you, then it doesn't really matter whether it applies or not, because you're still going to drown in the litigation, because it was never about whether the litigation was valid in the first place. The problem was the litigation is going awesome. to bleed you dry, and we need to make sure you don't get bled dry, because if you are, you're not going to be able to be in the business of helping people speak to each other online. So Eric Goldman so uh, writing about Sir Chiori in his technology and marketing law blog that you referred to said, I love this. I remain unclear why the court granted cert in this case. The plaintiff's arguments were so weak, the justices really didn't know what to do with them. A tip-off came with Justice Thomas's very first question, asking if the ISIS recommendations were the product of a, quote, neutral algorithm. This is a Google favorable question. Justice Thomas had begged plaintiffs to bring him to 30 cases, and now that he has one, Apparently, he's like, WTF? (laughs) I imagine the other justices who voted for cert felt similar qualms. I was really heartened by people like Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, and Thomas, and Alito even. People I thought, oh, these are the guys who really want to kill 230. Really asking pretty astute questions, mostly in Google's favor, I think. Now, Kathy, before we go too much farther, I've said this before i know others have said this you can't judge too much based on the oral arguments right uh, absolutely true um however i think the same thing that uh, eric was commenting on is probably something that is probably true we were expecting a very hostile audience that was holding on to a lot of the myths that are so pervasive in public discourse about 230 what it does and why and or why it why are we not why it's important or not we didn't get that we ended up getting a bench that was surprisingly informed and seemed to get it and seemed to understand what was at stake and we're kind of grappling with that because we're not used if you practice in their area in this area you're not used to having good days and it actually seemed like <laughs> something like wait this is must be too good to be true so how could it be true i think though the problem is is we might still get a little complacent because I think Google will win. I don't really think that the the number of votes is in question. I mean, they might just get rid of the whole case, but if if they decide it, I think it's not an issue where the petitioners are going to win. I didn't sense any appetite by the justices. They didn't seem impressed by that Gonzalez argument at all, but it's not enough. The problem is, is if they kind of start to speculate about potential limits to Section 230, even though that language is probably going to be dicta and so not particularly binding, it's just going to make an absolute mess of things and start to essentially become binding precedent as other courts interpret it. And it's going to be a roadmap for all the future litigation to challenge Section 230. So yeah, let's not forget that in the, until we get the decision. In the Henderson uh, test, the judge quoted Thomas's dissent three times. Right. 
So I think that might be why the justices were like, are you sure you like this? Because it wasn't like something you absolutely hate at the root of it. But. <laughs> it was kind of shocking. Uh, I, I so sometimes the, the justices will will play devil's advocate. They will attempt to, you know, they'll sound like they're in favor of an argument because they're attempting to find the holes in it, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Which is why you don't know what's going to happen. This will be what they'll announce in if they do continue with the case in roughly in June, right? It's hard to say. I mean, last time I think I was here, I was talking about the Warhol case. So that was October and I there's no decision there. So oh, it's okay. they're starting to render decisions, but on a schedule that is it's months only out. known to them. Right. So, yeah. But it's at least months out. Yeah. Um, so we'll have you Most back likely, then. but <laughs> either to yeah, celebrate, okay. we'll either have a cake or we'll all be dressed in black. Is it yeah. that dangerous? Is it that risky? Am uh, I overselling the risks to myself if 230 falls? No, you're not. Mm. No. Um, I mean, I, mm. I, I think I've been asked before with what will happen. And I think I said that we'll muddle through and the language of the decision will be the map by which we figure out how to muddle. But so it might be that like, you know, if I say the sky is going to fall and then, you know, we wake up the next day still breathing, then it sounds like I lose my credibility. But um, but just because we may not fall into the sea that day does not mean that seriously horrific and shifting tectonics uh, won't have happened to the ecosystem that won't be felt rather dramatically fairly soon. Can I ask you a question, Leo? Me? OK, yes, you. Yes, sir. Uh, because I'm curious, because because you were open minded and and changed your views on the algorithm uh, from what you I mean, Kavanaugh said, hey, algorithms are useful. They tell me what kind of pizza to get. So, know, did Thomas. Okay. so did Thomas. So did Thomas. I was and amazed. Thomas, right. Yeah. So I was curious, since you did change your mind and I'm grateful you did what you thought of the argument and because the, the, the case then spun around the algorithm and promotion. What did you think about it from that perspective? The I'll tell you what, and I bet you, Kathy, you were doing the same thing. When they got to thumbnails, I was screaming. <laughs> I was saying, no, you idiots. That's content. That's not Google. So they somehow, I don't know how Ms. Black got sucked into this uh, or Eric Schnapper, but they somehow got in a debate over whether thumbnails were considered a recommendation and 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 a hazard and algorithmic. When everybody knows the thumbnails just more from the content provider. Well, well so I don't know where to begin on that. There's so many problems with that whole thumbnail thing. One of the that was the only is, thing that worried me is they did some in a, in a number of times got sidetracked by really in, in inappropriate or insignificant issues. Right. Well, okay. The number of problems with this. One of the problems is. Their brief didn't talk about thumbnails particularly. Their brief right. talked about URLs. So the thumbnails was kind of new. They kept saying thumbnails are argument. URLs. And I was like, what are okay. you talking about? Oh, God. Secondly, then they were making a distinction to say that thumbnails were somehow different than screenshots. Because if the uh, their lawyer said at one point a screenshot would be totally fine, but not a thumbnail. <laughs> and then... Lisa Blatt ended up pointing out that a thumbnail was a screenshot. And also, why are we talking about these things? So poor um, Lisa, I'm eating the, breakfast listening to this and I'm screaming like, yeah. no, you idiot. Um, I was sitting next to reporters at the, the way I was seated, like the press pen was next to me. And I'm kind of listening to one of the lawyers who was sort of new to this space, kind of listening to this and being like, 
are you kidding? Like, and you're losing and you're sitting down. Like this poor lawyer was really not getting traction. Um, And like, where even lay people were understanding that, like, I think there's something wrong with your argument here, but they did have an argument that was in the brief as applied to a URL where what they were trying to say, and it was a bad idea. It would have eviscerated 230, but the core of the argument they were trying to bring forward is that. So 230 works on, the pivots on the question of who created the content at issue. If it is the platform who created it, it's their own stuff and you're always responsible for your own stuff. But if it was a third party who created it, then the platform is not liable because that would be a problem if a platform could be liable for all the stuff that they helped intermediate other people to say, because then they couldn't be available to help anybody say anything online. So the question that they had was, they were sort of trying to argue and I say sort of trying to argue because this was shifting, that um, when you recommended something, the way you produced the content of do you want this next somehow amounted to creating content that was now your content. And they had this yes. theory with like a URL that like if you spit back a URL, well, that URL wasn't created by the user. You created that <laughs> URL platform. And therefore, that is new information that you now own and you could be potentially liable for. This was not a distinction that ended up making sense because it would blow up everything. Um, and again, and the justices were smart. Sense. They got it. They said, well, they how do you have a search it. engine if you don't have URLs? <laughs> yeah, right. And like, again, it's like, how can you be responsible for creating content by virtue of displaying content that already exists because somebody else created it? Yeah. So, um, yeah, it, it was a, it was even at the best it was argued. It was a weak argument where it had huge logical problems of the statute would absolutely fall apart if this was the rule. And an oral argument, the lawyer was trying to sort of say, no, this is something more narrow and situational. It wouldn't apply here. It would apply there. But all of a sudden it was, it was just such an esoteric situation they were trying to describe where it kind of actually, if they managed to carve out all the ways it wouldn't apply, it also kind of carved out their whole complaint where it wouldn't apply to their complaint either. It was, it would be a problem. And what was really fortunate is I think the justices got it. They saw the number of flaws with this. I and, think that's what uh, Alito, they Alito, don't Alito spell URL. Alito actually said, this is what these, this is the, this is what you do. The algorithm is, is integral to it. Uh, I don't understand why they'd be liable for this. I mean, even Alito, who is, I think, arguably the most conservative of the judges. Um, Steve Gibson asked me something interesting yesterday. He said, wouldn't you be happy with, uh, that a conservative court was hearing this? You know, that originalists were hearing this because wouldn't they uh, protect Section 230, Kathy? What made everybody nervous going into this was all those concurrences and dissents that were not getting 230 and expressing suspicions about it. And we thought that that was sort of an ideological declaration and they were looking for the right vehicle to tear it up. And I mean, we thought it was a bad idea to tear it up. We were reading those dissents and concurrences and thinking they're wrong, they're they're missing it and they're going to cause real damage. So we were afraid that we were going to get something ideological where they wanted to blow it up and they were going to find a way to blow it up whether, and right, then you're stuck uh, right. with it. Whatever they wanted, whatever they, they would find so a way. So to find yeah. reason and understanding of what's actually <laughs> at stake, which in theory is an appropriate conservative value, um, was confusing, but good. So um, so all of a sudden I'm answering questions in a world I didn't know existed 
48 hours ago. Yeah. So Kathy, before, besides being able to read your document, which I, I bet really did have impact, it must've felt, you know, good to kind of see that they got things right. Um, before oral arguments, mm-hmm. how, besides reading all, all the filings, is there a process of education within the Supreme Court where where they say, hey, clerk, uh, I need a lesson. Uh, go find me somebody who can explain, who can answer my questions before we get in there or 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 something like that. Is there is there an educational process that they go through in addition to the filings? I don't think there's anything formal. Mm-hmm. Um, but one of the problems with the institution and its perceived credibility these days is um, the the barrier between their jurisprudence and their own modern lives are seeming incredibly porous. Um, and Well said, Counselor. And um, I think there's a lot of concern about the throughput of what information is reaching yes, them. Yes. However, the up, there's some upsides to it where probably some good information is is getting through based on the nature of their, their lives and who they interact with. That was my answer to Steve is these guys are only originalists when it serves their agenda. And, uh, you know, when it doesn't serve their agenda, they can they can create new ideas and laws as they as they wish. Um, well, they also understood there was one other thing that I thought was important, and it did show up in my brief and it showed up in some other briefs, which was even if you hate 230 and can make a better argument than I'm making in its defense for why it should go away. This is Congress's job. And there was yes. also a, a humility that the justices were expressing, that. which was. This may be wrong, but it's not for us to fix, right. and it belongs to Congress. And I like to cite, and I cited it in my brief, the Bostock case, which was, I think, a civil rights case where um, Justice Roberts, I think, wrote it. And he basically looked at it and said, like, look, we may think that what Congress did makes no sense, is not good policy, but it's what Congress did, and that's what the statute says. And if that's the wrong policy, it's for Congress to fix. Because also, if the court ended up helping itself to fix the policy— and they get it wrong. How do you you can vote out a member of Congress? I mean, this is idealistic, but in theory, you can vote out a member of Congress who screws up the Internet. But you can't really we can't vote out the justices or the judges who screw up the Internet. We're sort of stuck with that. And yep. if it turns out that Congress wrote the best policy or at least the policy that the public animating it wanted and they already wrote it and the justices don't let it mean what it says on its face, how does Congress write one that would because they already did and it didn't matter. So um, the humility that they were sort of like this, we hate it as much as you want, but it's not for us to change what the statute actually says. They were really trying to do a statutory interpretation and not break it. And uh, I don't think I expected prior to Tuesday morning that the it seemed like the majority of justices did not want to break it because they recognized exactly what would break with it. Well, it's the last thing I thought I'd hear from Justice Kavanaugh, but that was his whole point was okay, this is for Congress to do. And I don't remember who it was. It was Justice Kagan who said this could have a huge impact on the economy and businesses. I mean, they- Kavanaugh and Kagan. Kagan yeah. used like this will open up a world of lawsuits and then Kavanaugh echoed it and talked about the he was, I think, more touched by the economic impact of it. But basically, I think it is very fair to say that the amicus brief saved the day because even in this voluminous thing, which normally is like, well, great. You know, I know that some justices didn't read mine because it was lost in the flood. But the effect of the flood was I think it really woke the court up to the fact of what was at stake. And um, 
I think we did. I, I accidentally got quoted in CNBC today patting myself on the back for having written <laughs> an amicus brief. But I think actually, like, I knew I didn't want to be on the sideline. If the Internet was going to break, I wanted to roll up my sleeves and knew I did everything I could. And I think, you know, I think I can sleep easy in that sense. You that did I, it. I had the right skill at the right time. And I'm glad I could do that. You did it for us, Kathy. And we are eternally grateful that you contributed yeah. to that flood. Uh, although, as Mike Masnick says, uh, I still am right reading from his post today. I still very much fear the outcome of this case. Uh, it seems very, very unlikely that Gonzalez wins overall, but there was still an awful lot of nonsense spouted by the justices, some of which might make it into a final ruling where even some minor, tiny little misunderstanding could have a massive impact on the future of the Internet. Do you share that concern? Um, yes, generally how, uh, tuned I am to thinking how likely they'll break it. I don't know. I'm partly, I need to still get through the week, so I don't really, I'd rather take a more optimistic view, but, um, yeah, the language is going to matter because any little dalliance into that dicta of this is all fine. This is all fine. This is all fine, but this might not be is not great. I mean, a lot of their hypos were kind of scary, but the hypos were not the facts in question. So it's really important not to start adjudicating hypothetical situations Mm. that are not before the court Mm. where they can't see any of the other ambient facts and interpret them. So I really, really hope they resist that temptation. If they can write a clean decision that focuses only on this to say, given what was pled, there is no way this can go forward given Section 230 and like stop there. And I think we're good. There might be a way where maybe they can even amplify that 230. To, I mean, I wouldn't mind maybe positive dicta, but basically yeah. dicta is dangerous. I would rather have them be say, simple. Congress's just, intent was clear. And this is clearly in Congress's intent. And no, your your case is denied. So and I'll give you the pessimistic view. By the way, the reason, hold on just a second, the reason Mike is less than confident is today the Supreme Court decided not to grant cert to the Onion case and essentially essentially allowed law enforcement to arrest people for parody. And also they turned down the Wikimedia. um, Yes. uh, Yeah, that was a long shot, I thought. Uh, That's the one that was saying (laughs) the NSA's, uh, you know, grab of data uh, was should have been illegal. There's great concerns about the productivity of the court. And it's also a big deal why if they deny this case as improvidently granted, it's also an extra bit of egg on their face, which might be why they mm, don't. They yeah. are, they, they're not taking a lot of cases. They're already taking many fewer than normal. They're not hearing as many cases as they used to. And then the ones that they're taking, if it turns out to be mistakes, that's really not great because they're not doing much then and a court that is very deeply focused on a couple issues like okay maybe they really are very invested in internet free speech issues and maybe if they're invested in a way that protects it great but that can't possibly be the only thing that they're doing and um recognizing some of the other first amendment issues before them they really should have the capacity to be able to weigh in but they may have felt they have a, a big dance card already because they've got the Warhol case, which is fair use that touches on the First Amendment. They've got the 303 creative, which is a First Amendment case about what webmasters can do. Um, and now they've got this. And then you've also got the net choice cases waiting in the wings for a grant of certiorari. And that's not going to happen this term. So I don't know. Like, 
they could be useful. I almost felt like they're heroes to the internet. Like if Kavanaugh writes these decisions, I think we might be in good shape. But if that's the only thing they're doing in a sea of other things going horribly wrong, we still have a problem. All right. Now, can I give you my... my yes. Sorry, I didn't mean to scenario? interrupt, but I just wanted to... Oh, I want to say no. Right. <laughs> so here's a disastrous scenario in which the Supreme Court says, 230, dandy, law, fine shape, keep it. We think it's great. And then that only gives more ammunition to Congress and the executive who are ganging up in a pincer movement right now, left and right against tech companies and against 230 to say, one, well, then we've got to do something and repeal 230. And nobody likes the Supreme Court anyway, so fine, we'll just go against them. And we end up in worse shape legislatively than even the court was going to put us in. Look, I'm sitting here treating Kavanaugh just as Kavanaugh is my hero here because he understood it the <laughs> That's best. How bad and I'm like is. rooting for him to write these decisions because I think he'll actually write Let's good all ones. buy him a beer, Kathy. Do you like guy, beer? I mean, do it. How do I make the argument that this guy actually got something right and we should pay attention to it and that he's right and serious and credible? You're not wrong, but I'm not conceding that. Um, like, well, um, I also I think, think that we with the merits and yeah, what they say exactly. and how they lay that out. And depending on also how what they do say, there's a possibility that it can get a robust enough defense that it could shift the politics. And the politics are so screwy because they're screwy oh. on the left and they're screwy on the right. Yep, if yep, Kevin yep. writes the decision, they make the politics on the left worse, but they might actually help it on the right. So I don't know. You know, I'll I'll play out that hand when when it's dealt. Well, the very fact that the Ninth Circuit allowed this to continue is bad sign i mean we the fact that the supreme court's hearing this case at all is is really kind of well we thought so and now i think everybody's sort of regretting it and saying that you know maybe they i think they're aware that they may have gotten it wrong um but i don't know maybe they really want to set a i don't know it's possible that we could really have a happy ever after out of this but it's who am i kidding this this is the 21st century whatever you do don't write a parody post on Facebook about the local law officials because they can arrest you for that. Uh, <laughs> so, I mean, there's going to be another arrest and then there'll be another legal challenge. Yeah. And at some point, these things do eventually percolate up where they get the review that they need. You are an optimist. I'm being very optimistic, but I got, I'm, I need a nap. And I'm, if I start thinking more realistically about this, I'm just falling apart right now. Yeah. Well, you know, we got to take the little victories that we can get to. And uh, and you know what? I am completely willing to say somebody has been rehabilitated by their time on the court and their exposure to other ideas and, you know, and pat them on the well, back. Don't go overboard here, Leo. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, well, we always hope that, right? We always hope they'll rise yeah, to the hope. occasion. They so but rarely don't, do. Don't that... forget what we know. No, I know. I know. I know. It's it's I know. Please don't remind me. Me and Kathy, we're living in our little world right now, okay? <laughs> <laughs> Only happy thoughts. Only happy, happy thoughts. Happy thoughts. Let me take a little break. And uh, Kathy, if you want to get a get a beer, go right, go right ahead. <laughs> <laughs> I gotta get through the rest of the show. Okay. Possibly not yet. <laughs> I am I am so thrilled that you're here, oh, Kathy. Yes, yes. Uh, this is what Kathy does for a living. She wrote an amicus brief. Uh, that I'm sure some of the justices read, if not all, writes a tech dirt. Uh, her law offices are at cgcouncil.com, C-O-U-N-S-E-L.com. And uh, the fact that she was in the room 
where it happens yesterday is uh, such a boon for us. We're really grateful to you. I'm listening. I didn't know you were there when I'm listening, but I'm listening, you know, because they don't do video. They just do audio. And I'm and you're trying to read the tea leaves and really listen. Um, and I want I want I said we got to get Kathy on because I got to understand what I just heard. So thank you for being here. We really appreciate it. Glad to be here. Yeah. It's good you're here too, Jeff. So our show, <laughs> Aunt, you know I love you. <laughs> I mean, it's nice that Aunt is there. Love you too, sir. Love no, you too. I, I'm just teasing Jeff. Jeff and I, uh, we're like <laughs> brothers. Okay, we just uh, we have a little thing. We have a little thing. Uh, our show, <laughs> our show today is brought to you by it's like the Howard Stern show. I'm sorry, it's like it's like you know where you, where you bust the gonads of the of the people. I know the people you love the most. Part of the show, people you love the most. Yeah, that's yeah. Right. And I and that's I just right. interrupted the commercial, which is going to make me. I'm are you are you my here. Baba Booey? Who are you? I think I am. I think I am. Well, Jason could be. Well, I don't know. Well, I'm definitely Jeremy not Robin be. Quivers. <laughs> I'm not. I'm, yeah, actually, Jeff is my Robin Quivers. Actually, that's exactly who Jeff is. Yeah. Well, I don't laugh at you enough for that. No, you, you need to laugh more if you don't mind. Sorry, now you can go to your work. I'm sorry. Our, sh- <laughs> Our show today brought to you by HPE GreenLake. Orchestrated by the experts at CDW. Oh, GreenLake is an amazing technology. The helpful people at CDW understand, look, your business, you need simple management over your big data, right? We all got big data, but with some needing to keep their workloads on-prem, whether it's for organizational or, or compliance requirements, it can really be challenging to organize and optimize your data. That's where CDW can help your organization by consolidating and managing all your data in one flexible, unified experience with the HPE GreenLake Edge to Cloud platform. The experience you'll get with HPE GreenLake is unique because no matter where your data or applications live, you can free up energy and resources with automated processes, streamlined management. I mean, everybody loves streamlining, right? Not only that, HPE GreenLake creates a seamless cloud experience among multiple data environments thanks to the as-a-service model that meets your remote workforce at the edge. And with unrivaled scalability, you'll see an instant increase in capacity, allowing for greater flexibility and accelerated business growth. So your team can tackle bigger priorities like innovation. When you need to get more out of your technology, HPE makes data transformation possible. CDW makes it powerful. Learn more at cdw.com. Slash H-P-E, cdw.com slash H-P-E. We thank him so much for supporting our show. I would, One of the things that perturbed me a little bit was that the government, uh, the administration wrote a brief in favor of Gonzalez. Uh, so you've got Senators Hawley and Ted Cruz on one side and President Biden on the other side. That's my fear. Uh, what what did you think of the of the president's brief? Or I shouldn't say the president's, but the government's brief. Deeply concerned, but also a little confused because um, they wrote in support of Twitter in the Tamna case, and that was a good brief. But they today in oral argument they were taking, I thought, a much more profound. Uh, position in favor of Twitter, which was a, a straightforward interpretation of the ATA, which for a government that wants to go after terrorists, I thought was correct, but interesting politics. 
it, so today's this, today's argument was a good one by the government, where as a citizen, I am happy that the government took this position. I think it was tempered and appropriate and doesn't in any way compromise our ability to fight terrorists and, and was the brave and intellectually correct uh, decision to take. But between the Gonzalez decision and um, also the, the brief that the United States did in the Warhol case, there is a really frightening lack of respect for the free speech principles at stake in these cases. And that is not something where me sitting here as a citizen is happy to hear the president of the United States support. Yeah. Um, I don't think actually as his administration, he necessarily gets it. I don't think he's ever really gotten what the interests are, what the First Amendment interests are bound up in, in IP issues. He may be missing them in terms of Internet issues because he's echoed the politics of oh two thirty is bad and needs reform. And I don't think he gets it. Um, mm. So I'm really distressed that the government is spending resources to do things that will hurt the expressive interests and rights of the of Americans, especially if we're also trying to stave off, you know, fascists who would like to um you know, rewrite America in their own particular image. If we're going to be able to defend against that, we're going to need to be able to talk about it. So compromising our ability to speak against terrible, unconstitutional things is really important. And it should be priority one to defend. And if they're not doing it, then the answer to what I think about it is it's bad and a huge problem. And I'm deeply concerned about the brief that they're going to produce for the net choice cases, either in support or against the uh, the recommendation that the Supreme Court grants cert on it. On the other hand, the Tamna uh, argument was actually pretty good. So I'm not quite sure what's going on with the government, but I have concerns. The Tamna case, uh, they the plaintiffs want to hold Twitter liable for uh, posting content radical Islamic content from ISIS and others. Uh, and as a result, uh, you know, it's, it was brought by a family of another victim of a nightclub shooting in Istanbul. Um, and of course, just like the, the Gonzalez case, they didn't draw a direct line between uh, Twitter and the killing, but they did want to hold Twitter responsible for aiding and abetting terrorism. And that apparently the judges uh, saw two possible arguments. One that Twitter couldn't possibly know <laughs> that what was going on uh, on its services. Uh, and the other would be that Twitter didn't, what Twitter did was not considered substantial uh, assistance uh, along the lines of the, the, the law would require like a bank, say giving money to a terrorist group. Um, Sotomayor said that uh, you can't really give Twitter a win based on not knowing <laughs> what was going on. Quote, because willful blindness is something we have said can constitute knowledge. Um, but on the other hand, uh, I think that it seemed like, and I didn't listen to this one yet, uh, I'll listen tonight, the justices did not think that Twitter, Twitter's actions rose to the standard of actually aiding and abetting terrorism. The problem was they were not getting what they needed, which was, I don't think they had any appetite to give Tamna the win. Um, or Twitter the loss, but they have to write a decision that explains why Twitter would not be liable under the ATA. And in theory, to do it in a way that does not blow up the precedent that applied to banks, which may be a mistake that the, the cases that decided that the banks could be on the hook might actually have been decided wrong. And the Twitter lawyer suggested that um some analytical mistakes may have been made in those precedents, but that, that somehow they have to thread this needle and they were trying to get an 
a coherent, simple test out of the Twitter lawyer and then the government lawyer, and they weren't getting what they wanted. And the only thing that where I heard the thing that I think makes sense, which is that speech is involved because of the speech rights of the platforms and the speech that they're facilitating and that this is not a bank, this is not something else. Speech matters. So even if you can't otherwise get a test that would truly differentiate, the speech becomes the escape valve. But the only time I heard anything along those lines was from Justice Kavanaugh, who understood and your brought new, up your that new a hero. <laughs> I knew. Uh, <laughs> Kathy, were yeah. these Trump? I mean, we're sorry. Were these Musk Twitter lawyers or pre-Musk Twitter lawyers? Uh, I believe pre. It was Eric um, Schnapper. It was the same guy who argued the day before in Gonzalez. Poor guy. Well, he wasn't the Twitter's lawyer, but Seth Waxman was arguing for Twitter. And I think Seth Waxman was I'm sorry, Schnapper was, you're right. I'm sorry. Schnapper was for Temna. I'm sorry. And Seth Waxman, I think, was, I mean, somebody filed a petition for certiorari. That happened pre-Musk. We're not hearing that Musk is necessarily even paying all the lawyers that he owes for for things that Twitter was (laughs) using for. So I don't know what's going on. And we were deeply worried. What happens with certiorari granted on this? Is Twitter even going to litigate it? Like, does Twitter even have a client contact at at, uh, does Waxman have a client contact? Like, okay, he showed up and he argued it. I'm not entirely happy with how he argued, but he showed up and he did his professional duty. But. I, I've got to think that this is a very strange situation. Lawyering on behalf of Twitter right now is something that makes me deeply nervous. And I think all the friends that I knew who were lawyers at Twitter are probably not there anymore. I think it's mm-hmm. an ethical morass of how do you when you're a lawyer, you have a job to do like that's responsive to the client. But you've also got ethical duties that define your job. And I think they may be frequently in conflict if Twitter is your client, um, where how do you serve the client's interests where they have old liabilities that Twitter may or may not have recruited. They may have new liabilities that that Musk is busy accruing. How do you advise somebody who's not listening? Um, how do you advise somebody who's not paying? What a mess. Um, so <laughs> or, so well, what if Musk said, no, I'm gonna, I'm gonna... right there. Yeah. <laughs> you don't listen and you don't pay. Yeah. <laughs> right. And, and then the lawyer may not necessarily care about them in that order. You know, your well, let's, let's point out Waxman used to be a solicitor general. I mean, I'm sure he has deep respect for the court. Is it possible he's just doing this pro bono and, and saying, well, this needs to be argued? I mean, this was we were going to have I don't know what would have happened if nobody pursued the case. I mean, I'm not particularly happy with how we argued it, but I think we would have a separate and unique and rather scary problem if nobody showed up today. So I, mean, I guess Musk I'm glad said, somebody showed up. Yeah. Or or couldn't Musk have also said his contrarian self? No, I'm going to take the other side. Screw Twitter. Well, that's also one of the things Twitter's been taking positions in all sorts of cases. Mm-hmm. And then Musk has been shooting his mouth off, which is inconsistent with the defenses that he has inherited and really needs to have prevail or else he will be on the hook for the liability that people have have accused Twitter. of. He took on the liabilities. So if Twitter loses some of the cases that are pending, he's going to be the one writing the checks. So his mouthing off is not doing him and himself any favor. How does this work? So, 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 so Waxman, does Waxman have to have, does he have to have consultation with Twitter uh, under the new regime, even though he was presumably hired by and the suit was certainly filed by the old Twitter, but he can't continue to represent Twitter without Elon Musk's Twitter's approval, consent, yeah. right? I haven't, fu- well, 
I'm speculating, which isn't useful because also I haven't done the full research of all the ethical things, but it's not really supposed to work this way. And I don't know what's happened, but in theory, maybe the right conversations were happening. So it's probably not helpful to speculate and presume that the right conversations didn't happen. Um, It's just we're a little more on a razor's edge. This is not business as usual. This is not the way things that unfold. (laughs) It's very weird, isn't it? Yeah. 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 I mean, we didn't know what would happen with the change of ownership. Normally, the change of ownership is a lot more rational anyway, where, you know, you don't really expect that changing horses midstream means that all of a sudden you're crossing the stream in a different direction. Musk has created that issue. Um, but normally it's sort of like you take on the liabilities. If you had lawyers in play trying to minimize those liabilities, you don't usually mess up their job. You're like, keep going, keep going. Please, please do your job and minimize these liabilities. So in theory, that's probably essentially what happened with this case where you had a lawyer trying to minimize Twitter's liability and somehow was able to manage to show up today to continue that exercise. But um, that hasn't necessarily been true for all the other cases. He's fired lawyers. He's not paid lawyers. And he's shot off his mouth in certain ways that otherwise undermine defenses that might have been pending. It's a mess. I've been searching for any connection between Waxman and Musk. I don't I can't find any. So uh That's there's a good thing. There's, well, but there's yeah, well it is or it isn't. I don't know. I mean there's no there's uh here's a here's from CNN. Will Musk weigh in on today's SCOTUS case involving <laughs> Twitter? Uh there is no sign that Musk has been personally involved in the case, uh, even though the outcome obviously could have implications, I mean, for Twitter's business and uh, and its bottom line. Um I'm sure Elon has an opinion. He hasn't tweeted about it. Very weird. Don't don't tell tell Elon. He may not know. (laughs) He may may not know what's going on. But but I don't think Waxman could ethically argue the case without approval from the owners. Could he? I mean, it's so I don't know quite what I I'd have to think about it. The the brief for Sociari had already been filed. So if it wasn't going to be abandoned and it may have take required something affirmative to abandon it. But um, I don't I don't quite know. (laughs) I have to I think I'm assuming there was enough buy in that he could ethically show up and say he was truly representing the interests of his client. But it may have been the barest of minimum of things to tie him to it. Um, But I don't know what the options would be. It is really weird for all of a sudden, you know, you don't get certiorari very much. So it's really not something you never mind right yeah no that's weird (laughs) and it would have broke it like what would have happened to the ecosystem if all of a sudden that wasn't pursued so anyway it got pursued somebody showed up somebody argued it i think we'll survive i don't know how cleanly we'll survive you knock some wood please kathy Knock some wood for me. I only and think I have formica. I don't right behind right gonna... behind you. You got that frame. Something's Go ahead and knock on the frame. <laughs> I can't. I can't read. How well oh, do you think oh, my no. phones are? The want of three oh. inches. The internet collapses. Yeah, you know, I hadn't really thought about all of that until you brought it up. It's an interesting question. We live in interesting yeah. times, don't we? And hey, you're right. I mean, Elon. I mean, I don't think Elon loves terrorists. He might think that uh, you know maybe well, Matt, maybe Matt maybe is, is putting he together. He likes a, Russia's just fine. Yeah, maybe I'm not sure. where he draws his lines may not be the place where you and I would draw yeah, our lines. That's right. That's right. Uh, have we have we done this to death? Is there anything more to say about this? We just have to wait till the decisions appear uh, sometime I think later we'll, this year. We may stumble on something, but. Um, yeah, I mean, there's lots to talk about, but it's sort of like, 
Yeah, at a certain point, like the more we're speculating, the least, the less useful it is. Yeah, yeah. I don't want to. We need more data. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but fascinating. If you, and if you haven't uh, ever listened to Supreme Court oral arguments, they're always interesting. These in particular, I guess, maybe because we had a dog in that hunt. But um, and I, I don't know nowadays where you listen to them. I used to go to Oye Oye. I don't know. Uh, I think they're actually on the Supreme Court site ah, as it nice. is. Oh, nice. um, and then other sites may like SCOTUS blog may refer to them. CNN was the the streamer, so they may have them. Yeah, well. I listen to C-SPAN's uh, stream. And, uh, C-SPAN, not yeah, CNN. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, oh, interesting. All right, so you can go to the Supreme Court website and uh, listen for yourself. Tell us what you think. <sighs> it takes a lot of time. As a caution, each of these ran nearly three hours. Three hours, yeah. Yeah, Amazing. it was long. And I think today's was a lot longer than anybody, including the justices, expected. So you showed up at what time and got out at what time, Kathy? Uh, well, I didn't today. Yesterday, I showed up at about 535 in the morning, Oof. and I got spat out at about 1245, I think. Okay. So if you're asking why I didn't necessarily go today, that's why. Yeah, it's exhausting. Plus, you, you, have, a, you have a, yeah, right. Let me, play, let me just play, if you've never heard this, uh, I could play a little bit of it. Uh. They won't take Mr. a snapper. Um, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court, Section 230C1 distinguishes between claims that seek to hold. And this is the attorney for Gonzalez. Internet company liable for content created by someone else and claims based on the company's own conduct. That distinction is drawn in each of the three sections of the statute. First, Section 230C1. So I'll give you a little bit. I'll jump ahead a little bit and, and you can hear the justice's question. About the thumbnails. And going to the other extreme of active collusion. Because there has to be a line somewhere in between. It can't be merely because you're a com computer uh, person that you can create an algorithm that discriminates against people. You have no problem with that, right? Uh, if a, if a, the the if, writing of the algorithm would probably constitute aiding and abetting. Exactly. If you write one that discriminated against people for a user. How does it work, Kathy? They have a certain mm -hmm. amount of time? Uh, or how does that work? Is there a light? It's, um, it's changed, and I, I think we're all figuring it out. It used to be like kind of the way an oral argument works at the circuit courts where you're allocated like 15 minutes or 20 minutes or something like that. And you have some lights in front of you and they kind of, it's green when you got lots of time, then it's like yellow at yeah. a two minute warning. And then red, when it's like you finish your sentence and sit down, unless the judge tells you to keep going. Um, Just like this... all the other comedians in the country. <laughs> <laughs> Get the hook. But how about the justices? Uh, they take turns. In fact, it looked like they rotated through. So they changed things up when we went to remote because they kind of had to. Right. And the way they started changing it and handling their own questions internally shifted things. I mean, one of the things that it shifted is now Justice Thomas opens his mouth. He never asked Yeah, I know. He was very uh, active. Yeah. Yeah. In this new format, he asks questions and it's it's a very significant transformation because he really didn't believe in them. But now he does, I guess. And he seems to like asking some interesting and hypos or they're very colorful hypos. I think he actually likes to hear himself tell these <laughs> hypos. But um, uh, but he I, he may also care about the answers as well. But 
that sort of changed it, but I don't fully understand the new system. Like it, so I think the new system is every lawyer when they start gets, I think, two minutes of silence where they get to make their pitch and nobody's going to interrupt them. And then it turns into a hot bench. But I don't know if it's an unfettered hot bench where everybody asks their questions or if they go through in series or actually it may be some combination of both. Because uh, you can kind of hear at the end, Justice Roberts go through the order of seniority, like anything else, Justice Thomas, anything else, yeah, Justice Alito, anything I, I else. Heard and that. Then yeah, last, yeah. Um, I think that's towards the end. And eventually when it peters out that there's no more questions, then they're done. But right. you're um, a hot bench. I like that. This show is a hot bench. Hot bench is a is a term that I've learned in law school. It <laughs> describes if you're doing oral argument and you actually get peppered questions from the just from the judges or justices, that's a hot bench. Um, and it can be some people don't like it because it you know, the argument is going to go the way they take it as opposed right. to the way you planned it. But a lot of uh some lawyers like it a lot because like otherwise you just sort of like are sitting there talking into a void and you have absolutely no sign of whether your arguments are landing or not. So it's kind of, it gives you feedback at least. Uh, I did want to, and I don't know if I can find it, but I did want to find the part where Justice Kagan says we're not the nine greatest experts on the internet. <laughs> and the shame of it is the the sound in the room was not great, so I'm I never heard it. Like some uh, of it is I didn't know. Some there was of the, some there of was a lot of laughter. The laugh there was the laughter. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Let me circulating see. the video. There was Let me say this. Uh, this you could organize Thomas. it on the basis of what's more trustworthy than. Than something else. And Justice Gorsuch was on the phone. I think that I think, might right? matter. Yeah. Oh, it's, uh, Justice Sotomayor, anything further? So this is where Roberts is, is going around the horn. Let's assume we're looking for a line. Presented with similar videos. So I, we're I hearing it better than you could hear it. Um, yeah, because I don't think I had any amplification. I think ah. I was just hearing the sound organically as it passed through Yikes. the room. So it was hard to hear the the, uh, the people arguing because their voice is projected away from me. Right. And I, I, it didn't, I mean, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it was amplified, but it didn't sound like it. It really just sort of sounded like. they have hearing aid stuff. If they have, you could have said you were hard of hearing and gotten a, an aid. Well, I suppose, but I, that didn't occur to me, but. Yeah. um. I mean, I could hear most of it, but like small talk or things that went like more under, especially if they were talking over each other, I was not in a position to parse that out. Plus, I was also blocked. I was sitting behind people. So right. I'm sitting behind taller people and they're just absorbing all the sound. So. Is it scary to uh, to be uh, an attorney? Uh, have you, You've done this, right? You've have you stood up at the bar? Um, not in this court oh, okay. uh, and not at a court of appeal. I've argued motions and um, yeah, it is sort it's of got to be terrifying thing. because you also have you, to you think know, on your feet. I, I mean, I'm listening to the, you know, uh, Tom Thomas proposed some hypothetical and then Eric Schnapper's got a um, uh, well, uh, uh, <laughs> but they're very good. I have to say they obviously know what they're talking about and they're very good at, uh, I think, playing the game of saying, well, I don't want to go down that road or. You know, was, I thought it was very interesting. I like there are that. certain things where, um, I mean, I'm critical of the lawyers and maybe unfairly because it is a hard job. You have to know your case backwards and yeah. forwards and know all sorts of things and also have your talking points and also know what you're going to steer around. Where I've been critical of both of the Twitter lawyer and also the Google lawyer was you also have to listen and really understand what you're getting back so you can adjust. And I, I was disappointed by 
the lack of adjustment for Justice Jackson, who I think you could reach her and explain it in a way that made sense. But that was what was being said was not wrong, but it was not getting packaged in a way that this was going to be an accessible idea. She's Um, brand new on the the court and perhaps not yet fully acclimated, you think? Um, I think she's very wary of some of these like she commented in open court in the Warhol case that this was an area that she didn't have a lot of expertise and she was new to it. So I think for these technical areas, she, you know, if they're not something where she's been imbued for her right uh, legal career, she is going to be new at it. And I think, you know, if you're new to it, you're going to be circumspect. Right. The problem is, is we need her to come up to speed immediately because yeah. the issues are that critical and are right. taking adjudication right now. Um, and I was, I was concerned by some of her comments. I mean, things like she kept saying it's a narrow statute and please, please, please read my brief where I have a whole section on it's a broad statute, but also to listen to her colleagues. And I hope she does because like she's sitting, I think, next to Justice Kavanaugh and he's talking about it's a broad statute. I think he used that word. And then for him to say it's broad and for her to say it's narrow. Wait, hang on a second. Like if you're disagreeing amongst yourselves, can you hopefully hash this out under yourselves so you can figure out is it broad or narrow and, you know, to the extent that that's going to matter to their adjudication? Um, I don't think both views are correct, but, um, you know, so something like that where can you, but sometimes they ask the questions because, you know, a lot of the questions were framed as essentially if we're going to, if you're going to win and we're going to write this decision, how do we write it? And so a lot of the questions were, I think they were very much telegraphing of Help us we don't out. want the other side to win. Yeah. We want this, but you've got to you've got to give us the answers. Yeah. And some of that I think got punted. I think it got more punted today than yesterday. But even yesterday, like agreeing to the Henderson test, I think was was potentially a mistake. Uh, you show us your filing again. I have it here. Oh no! I just want to see. It oh, that's, that's so cute. Cool. So you got it in a little pamphlet. That's so there. cool! It's, but they have to be. This is the format that it it becomes a big problem because it's very prescriptive in how you file uh, and how you file briefs at the court, which makes them very expensive. So it affects. It becomes an access to justice issue because it's not enough to just get the lawyer who might do it pro bono. You've got to get somebody who's going to be able to pay easily a thousand dollars, potentially three thousand dollars and more if you've got a big record to get these things in the door. And it's it's a problem. But it was weird because I've written another brief where Go ahead. Oh there was Go ahead. (laughs) There was looking uh, for that line. I found there was a okay there was there was a um when we had the thing for the Texas case where there was an emergency petition to the US Supreme Court and we were writing it was a shadow docket request for relief from the Supreme Court. I wrote an amicus brief in support of the relief. And because that's not an official type of action before the court, there were no rules. So we sent it on eight and a half by 11 white paper. So it was, it's weird. It's like the things with the rules become barriers, but the things with no rules, it's, it's open. How many copies do you send? You send nine copies? I hire a printer to do this. So I forget. No, they send like 40 some odd, I think. So, All yeah. the clerks have to get a copy. Here, here is the uh, t- one of the highlights. Anyway, but that's my concern. Is, is I can imagine Justice a world Kagan. where you're right that none of this stuff gets protection, and you know every other industry has to internalize the costs of his conduct. Why is it that the tech industry gets a pass? A little bit unclear. On the other hand, 
I mean, we're a court. We really don't know about these things. You know, these are not like the nine greatest experts on the Internet. (laughs) (laughs) I like what she said, though. Every other business has to internalize the costs of these things. So, you know, just because it's costly doesn't mean you shouldn't do it. Uh, Of course, it's costly to Google. It means a different thing than it's costly to Leo. Uh, Yeah, existentially costly is different than just expensive. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Anyway, I loved that moment. And I quite enjoyed listening to the arguments. Encourage you all to do that. Well, they've uh, they've decided not to get the balloon. <laughs> Another balloon was shot down today. By the way, this was oh, probably really? yeah. This is a bad idea. So NORAD for the longest time ignored these slow moving, uh, floating Watch objects. Watch out, Santa! Santa's doom. Yeah, they uh, uh, they after the Chinese balloon was shot down in North Carolina, I said you know maybe we should be paying attention to these slow moving objects now they've shot down four and it's not at all clear that what they're shooting down are anything from china in fact they don't think it is but the problem is this this little balloon that was shot down over the yukon they can't get it because it's in the you know snowy and it's cold and so they dispatched two f-22 raptors these are 300 oh million gosh. dollar plus airplanes oh uh cost seventy thousand dollars an hour to fly to chase down this balloon, uh, did they got it? We got them with a forty thousand dollar Sidewinder <laughs> missile. Uh, now they're thinking this balloon might have actually been a um, a mylar little mylar thing from the North Illinois Bottle Cap Balloon Brigade. <laughs> they are hobbyists who launch little uh, balloons just to like go go around the world. This balloon had been around for one hundred twenty three days. Uh, had, had circled the earth six times, uh, was last seen <laughs> flying towards Alaska. Um, and uh, then on Feb- February 11th, uh, disappeared. They haven't heard from it since. Uh, after uh, which was exactly the same time the F 22 used a name 9X Sidewinder missile to shoot it down, <laughs> shoot something down. Uh, one balloon expert talked to by NPR said, I am 98% certain it was that, it was that balloon. The little Mylar balloons, uh, that are fairly fragile. So they, they talk to the club and the club, you know, let's, let's them go (laughs) and they go up, they go pretty high, you know, but they're not a hazard to aviation because, uh, as they go up in the air, the, you know, the air pressure goes down. And so the Mylar gets stretched pretty thin uh, he said, you know, just the jet wash, you probably just <laughs> pop it. Just, right. you, know, you just fly by it and it's going to go, oh, uh, it carries a, <laughs> oh, <laughs> it carries a tiny little uh, payload of just a few ounces, about 16 point, not even an ounce, 16.4 grams, half an ounce, which uh, can clu- includes a GPS module, a transmitter, because that's how they track it, a little computer and a tiny uh, solar panel to to give it power. Uh, weighs about half an ounce, costs less than $100 for this balloon. So we just want to say, you know, I think really, you know, uh, uh, a salute to uh, K9YO stroke 15. Uh, I feel safer, don't you? <laughs> so, okay, so this, hob- you said it's a hobbyist group, sir? Yeah, well, I think so. so their name didn't... their name kind of implies the Northern Illinois <laughs> B- Bottle Cap Balloon Brigade. <laughs> okay, I don't think it's so, an official. Organization. I don't think they're an official organization. <laughs> Doing stuff like this, don't you normally have to get some type of clearance? No, they're so ATC? small and so fragile. The FAA 
does not have to uh, approve it. They, of course, have FCC approval for the little radio transmitter. But yeah. uh, the FAA doesn't track these. They're just little hobbyist balloons, and they're not harmful. Because I'm just or, thinking about the tiny little drones that people still right. have to register to this day. But if they're um, under, what is it? Uh, so under some, 250 grams, right. you don't have to register. So this thing, so, this yeah. thing weighs eight grams. I don't. Yeah, I think it's. Yeah. <laughs> okay. No, I'm sorry. Right. 16 grams. I don't think it's gonna. Wow. No. And they said they the FAA does not. Uh, uh, Federal law requires most large flying objects to be registered, but amateur Pico balloons are so mm. small and light they're not subject to these requirements. Right. They're okay. doomed now. <laughs> but oh, there's but they shot dollars. another one down today, and again they're not they're not getting them because they're so tiny and they and it's <laughs> kind of cold and remote and. <laughs> okay, you I just mean, imagine the pilot uh, up there. You want me to shoot what? <laughs> I just want to imagine like what they paint on their planes to honor the kills that they right, got. Like, right. you know, like, it's <laughs> a little balloon, a little balloon on the plane, balloon. little balloon. The uh, the onion. Balloon. Here's the onion story. U.S. successfully shoots down kid jumping too high on trampoline. Uh, okay, okay. Come on, man. That's a joke. Obviously, obviously. Although. Pretty big explosion coming out of that. Nicely done. Anyway, onion. yeah, yeah. Uh, let's see. Oh, I thought this was interesting. Speaking of Google, a post from uh, an ex-Googler, Praveen Seshradi Adri, uh, who uh, was uh, joined Google uh, because his uh, startup AppSheet was acquired. Um, he says the acquiring team and executives welcomed us and treated us well. We joined with great enthusiasm and commitment. Yet now, at the expiry of my three-year mandatory retention period, I have left Google, understanding how a once-great company has slowly ceased to function. Google has a... This is, by the way, is this kind of a almost a tradition now from people leaving Google, going back uh, yeah, to yeah. Uh, the founder of Waze, uh, Noam Bardeen, who uh, left a similar note on his way out the door. Um Praveen writes this on Medium. He says, Google has 175,000 plus capable and well-compensated employees who get very little done quarter over quarter, year over year. Like mice, they are trapped in a maze of approvals, launch processes, <clears throat> legal reviews, performance reviews, exec reviews, documents, meetings, bug reports, triage, OKRs, H1 plans followed by H2 plans, all-hand summits, inevitable reorgs. The mice are regularly fed their cheese, promotions, bonuses, fancy foods, fancier perks. And despite many wanting to experience personal satisfaction and impact from their work, the system trains them to quell these inappropriate desires and learn what it actually means to be googly. Just don't rock the boat. His contention is essentially that Google makes so much money with so little effort on uh, search ads that they have gotten highly conservative about everything else. That don't rock the boat really means, you know, don't jeopardize the business. And they don't have to because they make so much money. He worked at Microsoft for a long time and kind of the dark days of Microsoft. He said Microsoft managed to turn, turn things around, but it required exceptional leadership and good fortune. Google has a chance. I'll be rooting for it. The world will benefit immensely. He also says Google's in better shape. Re read that part because he says that Google has has a mission. 
yeah. and is self-reflective. And there's a chance here, but yeah, I've heard from people inside Google that it's like the Marines. The, the, the hierarchy is killer. Uh, the approvals are, they don't, uh, they still, as I understand it, don't have a budget for this year yet. And the year is two months in. Oh my God. Ooh. Oh, because they're not used to cut. As one, one person I know said, "We've never been told to cut." Right. I got that second hand. Right. And yeah. now, and now they are. Um, Eric Schmidt always said that Google's biggest problem will be size. It will grow too big. Yeah, and it's 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 more than doubled in the last two or three years. So yeah. it's really yeah. grown by uh, huge leaps and bounds. When you wrote, "What would Google do?" Obviously, it was a leaner, meaner, smarter Google. Mm -hmm at the time um i still think they're just as smart i mean it's, it's a discussion we had about it about is the smartest people GPT. isn't it right i think yeah. it makes sense for some, a company as large as this to have all of the different checks and balances in place as far as approvals and whatnot but yet at the same time there's no excuse for some of the crap that's been thrown out into the public from google that you when you know you've had this stuff had to get approved at some point but yet it's not working that that's that's leadership stuff still to me. That's he does. Still, he says it's got to start at the top. Um, yeah. And I think that. Well, here's the question. Is it, is it, is Sundar the right CEO for Google at this time? Good guy, but I don't think he's getting it done. Mike Elgin. I have to wonder was. Go ahead. Oh, okay. So I wonder with some of this where before I became a lawyer, I worked in tech and I worked at, um, I worked at a large company that, grew and grew and grew, and then all of a sudden had to cut. And one of the things that you sort of realize when you're in a big company is it is a really difficult thing to manage because yeah. essentially when the times are good, you have the cash, you have the department, they have the budgets, and you hire people, and the people's careers are depending on providing returns that get measured in ways that at least their department and immediate reporting structure can validate and verify they may or may not plug in well with the mission of the rest of the company. So you can end up with very empowered people who do things that may actually not be consistent with the country company's interests because it's very difficult to plug into the mothership. And it's a huge organizational problem where you can look at companies and sort of say they're making mistakes and there might be really stupid ways of growing and less stupid ways of growing. But I don't think it's a precise science. I think it's there's a lot of challenges. And if you're going to look at it, I mean, maybe Sundar could be doing a better job or being more aware of this dynamic and managing through it. But I think there's a lot of things to look at. Like there are some crappy things that come out of tech, um, in particular things that like make a mess in the privacy space. But I used to work in marketing for these big tech companies and like in the 1.0 days. And you get a marketing person who's like, well, how do I get a promising lead? How do I get like a return on this? How do I get contacts that we can continue to market to where they were being incentivized and success was described in terms that actually it turns out that if you did it, you were succeeding at your job, but you were doing a terrible thing for the company and ultimately messing up the public policy um, and doing things that were creepy for the customer. But you ended up with a disconnect because what they were being told to do and trained to do and encouraged to do were bad ideas. And so what do you do when you're you're at cross purposes like that? How does that happen and how do you fix it? And what do you do with all your talented people who are like, but I just want my job and my career. Yep. Um, how do you tell me now that the things that I used to specialize in are bad? You know, I also think, Kathy, you, you, you're right. They specialized in things like engineering, engineering, engineering. And, you know, I think what they're missing right now, you may laugh at me for this, is Marissa Meyer. 
because she was a product person who talked about the customer. Good point. And that's the piece you read from Leo talks about this too. Corey Doctorow's certification piece. Is that the one you're talking about? Or no, you're talking about this one I just read. I think it might be for mispronouncing some of his consonants (laughs) and the term that he used. (laughs) I have to say it that way. Uh, that's the good place. How, how did you say that. it, Miss Kathy? <laughs> uh, but it, but that's what he that's what Corey says, which is that any company, including Google, Amazon, everybody else, starts with a customer first focus, then becomes a business first focus, and finally becomes profit first uh, focus. Uh, you have weird incentives that are operating on it. I mean, especially as the companies go public, especially right. as all of a sudden they need to return certain values to the shareholders or the shareholders will sue. I mean, you did see a lot of tech companies try to establish themselves with structures that gave them more flexibility to continue to sort of do what they really believed in without having to necessarily worry about shareholder value, et cetera. But um, it may not be a panacea there either, because then you get like a Facebook where corporate control ends up not necessarily being diversified in ways that maybe the company will suffer from. Um, It's hard. Like these are hard problems. And I think we also have to look more broadly, especially, I mean, this annoys me in the tech in the section two thirty discussion, because everyone's like everything bad about the tech policy space is because of section two thirty, And it's not, we have an awful lot of other law that is operating on the space that is potentially creating incentives for companies to act in ways that, in the broad picture, we really wouldn't like. So how do we change the regulatory terrain in all areas that law touches on it so that the companies do act in a way that does more of what we want and less of what we don't want? It's not just 230. Um, And 230 is sort of an example of actually what it looks like when you can align the incentives better to get the most of what you want and the least of what you don't. But so far, 230 is crumbling under under the weight of having to completely explain and manage perfectly every single externality produced by tech. And that's not what the law was designed for. And that's why it's creaking. And that's why it's getting unfairly criticized, because it can't possibly fix everything that would go wrong with innovation. So it's really how can we screw big tech? Oh, let's do this. Uh, and that's not the problem, obviously. Um, uh, Sestrati says, the way I see it, Google has four core cultural problems. They are all the, na- it's not just size. They're all the natural consequences of having a money printing machine called ads that has kept growing relentlessly every year, hiding all other sins. The sins he talks about, no mission, no urgency, delusions of exceptionalism. Like, we're Google, uh, you know, we're the greatest. And, was, and, when I was at Timeic, that was that was a big disease. Oh, well, if yeah. If we do it, if we spend the most money on it, it must be the best yeah. one. Yeah. I remember I had friends in the 80s who were at Atari, which at the time was king of the hill in video games. And they just thought they were the bee's knees. And uh, their shirts did not smell badly. But, in fact, <laughs> shortly thereafter, uh, they were all out of work. Finally, he says it's mismanagement. Uh, you know, we we told this story a couple of weeks ago that Google called a code red after Chat GPT came out and brought in Larry and Sergey to to kind of I don't know what, uh, but Sundar Pichai called him, yeah, to give him a little goose. Uh, and then of course they rushed out, and we tied this story last week. They rushed out a a flawed announcement. By the way, and maybe Google's going, yeah, we dodged that bullet. Microsoft's taken all the heat in the world for chat GPT. Google never did turn on BARD, right? Right. And now they're saying, yeah, maybe oh, we, we can delay that. Yeah, let's delay that a little longer. 
Those were long. the careful ones. Yeah. All that, all that, all the things that guy writes about in that piece <laughs> about being careful and slow—that's a big yeah. advantage. No right risk. Now. No risk. Yep. Um, I I can't imagine. Sin- I don't know what the board's thinking. I think the board needs to kick the kick Sundar out. As nice a guy as he is, or maybe not out, just oh, down. Yeah. He's a wonderful or, fellow. Or they need they need. My view is that what they miss oddly is marketing. Think. Product and marketing thing. Product is king at Google, but product there means engineering. Product right. should mean customer. Well, and he's and and uh, he also Shashadri also says, uh, you know, yeah, you could say customers first, product first, but but really it's risk first. You know, let's let's respect the risk. With two of core Google's core values are respect the user and respect the opportunity in practice. The systems and processes are intentionally designed to respect. Risk risk mitigation trumps everything else. This makes sense if everything's going wonderfully. And the most important thing is to avoid rocking the boat and keep sailing on the rising tides of ad revenue. In such a world, potential risk lies everywhere you look. And so they're very careful. I, You know, we all look, we all see it. We all know what something's going on. Um, and this makes as much sense as anything I've read. Speaking of which, uh, there is a big transition at YouTube. We found this out uh, right after the show uh, last week. Susan Wojcicki stepping down from YouTube after nine years. And 25 years of the company. Yeah. She was employee 16. 16. uh, She got to know Larry and Sergey by renting them the garage that they built Google in after they left Stanford. (laughs) Good Uh, on her. Yeah. She's going to spend more time with her money. Uh, and I think that's wonderful. Um, I bet she becomes a VC or something like that. Right. But uh, you know, if you spend that much time at a company, 25 years, she's certainly vested hundreds of millions of dollars in stock. Yeah. Um, no, no reason for her not to, uh, not to take off or off. She wrote hi YouTubers. She's sold over the years. Oh yeah, I know. I mean, well, you talk about Marissa Myers, you know, she was, she was sitting pretty when she left Google. She didn't she oh, didn't yeah. need to make money. 25 years ago, Susan Wojcicki writes, I made the decision to join a couple of Stanford graduate students who were building a new search engine. Their names were Larry and Sergey. I saw the potential of what they were building, which is incredibly exciting. And although the company only had a few users and no revenue, I decided to join the team. It would be one of the best decisions of my life. One of? <laughs> one of? <laughs> Today, after nearly 25 years, I've decided to step back from my role as the head of YouTube and start a new chapter focused on my family, health, and personal projects I'm passionate about. It concerns me a little bit to hear the word health in there, but uh, I hope she has no No, that's not unusual, right? If you're you're CEO of a company, you're going to have stress, which leads to some... That's not good for you, is it? Health stuff. It could cut both ways, but I think Leo's point is like, if it's getting called out what is motivating motivating yeah. that specific call out yeah. like is this something that that sentence would have been complete without it except it happens mm-hmm. to be something at forefront of her mind yeah mm-hmm. well so i hope she's, she's also on the right. board of salesforce which is an interesting board these days uh what's going on at Ooh. salesforce um well they messed up with the uh, acquisition of uh slack uh there's co-ceo left um, uh, there's pressure from outside investors against, uh, Benioff. Um, it's interesting times. They were, you know, there was a part of their layoffs. 
Yeah. Back in Carolina. Oh, really? I'm sorry. Um, they were on top of the world. I mean, they built that beautiful yeah, building in downtown San Francisco. Downtown. Actually, they didn't build They built it. a building. I don't know if I'm going to completely <laughs> ratify the adjective you used. <laughs> <laughs> it's beautiful. My my wife uh, shares your opinion, by the way, Kathy. And uh, <laughs> whenever away. we're down there and you see, they, for some reason, they they from time to time will have a dancer dancing and and then her silhouette projected on the at the tip of this building <laughs> wow. and, uh, i don't know i probably can't say what my wife right says there. in the polite company but you can use your imagination just mispronounce all the consonants again it'll be fine <laughs> <laughs> i live in the good place there it is there's the picture of the uh, they call it the salesforce building salesforce does not own it but it is one of the is the kind of the key tenant uh there um yeah, you know what? It's tough these days to be a big tech giant, right? You're either in the Supreme Court, you're testifying in front of Congress, you're getting me tooed, uh, you're, you know, I mean, it's just a, it's a tough time or you're laying off tens of thousands of employees. Um, better to be a, uh, like us and, you know, in, <laughs> falling between the cracks. Basically, nobody cares. Nobody's paying any attention at all. Even even NPR is laying off people because of declining really? ad revenue and podcasting. Yeah, yeah podcasting has really, uh, really sucks these and days. A, and <laughs> I'm, I'm going to say something. Well, just switching subjects. I've been deeply alarmed, and I'll have to just leave it here because it's been a while since I've read this. But uh, some of the positions that NPR has taken in uh, the copyright space have been deeply concerning mm -hmm. for a form of media that decided that we we're going to serve the public by being publicly supported has taken positions that I think are hostile to the public because they're so fixated on the monetization Ugh. that obviously they have to have money somehow, but they're so focused on general commercial models of monetization that they are advocating for copyright issues that I think are detrimental to the overall public interest. Are they doing I mean, that in courts that, or are they just, uh, I mean, are they suing people or what's going on? Well, I've seen some stuff in terms of comments at the copyright, uh, in front of the copyright office, I believe, but also in the Aereo cases, one of the lead plaintiffs was WNET, yeah. I believe, which was channel 13 in, in what? the New York city Public area. broadcasting and in the, in New York was being sued well, by NPR. I remember growing up and, and what, well, not NPR, but, um, and let me also say we, the general PBS. public and including me, yeah doesn't necessarily get the distinctions between right. the various uh, forms of public entities. And so this doesn't necessarily apply to all of them, but I have seen NPR in particular, I think it's some of the commons, but also other forms of public broadcasting. Um, the WNET thing suing Aereo made absolutely no sense to me. Oh, I remember yeah. growing up and watching, right. I mean, Sesame Don't... Street would be preempted while they did their pledge drives, while right. they talked about how important it was that the public supported it so kids could watch Sesame Street. And all of a sudden, they're trying to sue an antenna service that was delivering Sesame Street. Yeah. How is that consistent? How oh, do you yeah. go to the public and say, support us so we produce this programming, which now we're going to make sure that nobody can watch because we sued the technology that was facilitating the watching? It makes no sense. And it's it's a Shonda. And I, I it's terrible. And I think there needs to be a reckoning of if. I mean, I do believe in supporting public broadcasting in its various forms, but not if it's going to take hostile positions to the public interest, because then what's the point? Was yeah. that the dime-sized little antenna? Yeah, that was the ones that were on the yeah. roof and, yeah, uh, yeah the yeah. little tiny. Yeah, everybody gets their own 
uh, I put out of business by the Supreme Court uh, and I guess by WNET. And then Locust as well. I mean, we've yeah. got ugh, I, I, I'm, I'm too busy surfing my Section 230 temporary high to go into that. But um, money ruins everything, Kathy. <laughs> money, greed, maybe not money, but greed. And the problem is greed. Say, is, let me have some money. I'm going to say copyright <laughs> law also ruins everything. Copyright law should not have allowed Locust to shut down. And the public is being locked away from the airwaves we own. And I can't watch things that are being broadcast on public TV because I don't have my own antenna and I don't have cable and for right. various reasons I can't get it. How is I not supposed to be able to watch the Super Bowl? Broadcasters. Because I, mean, I, I was somewhere where I could. But, it is a little bit of greed uh, because broadcasters got used to not only getting ad revenue from their free on the air broadcasts, but getting revenue from cable companies because of must carry laws. And they, and they basically are double dipping and they, yeah. and they were reluctant to give up the latter even though they were still making money on advertising. Anyway, NPR, Trans go ahead. Yeah, well, transmission fees, I think, have been an extremely destructive economic force. Yeah. Um, they, yes. they've, they've been for the greed, yes. and um, I, I think it's tenuous enough in the cable space, and I think it's absolutely abhorrent for any licensee of public spectrum to basically demand that the public pay for them getting to broadcast on public spectrum. I that agree. makes no sense whatsoever. Amen, sister. Amen. Counselor sister. NPR reducing 10% of its workforce due to dropping ad sales. Uh, they operate on a $300 million budget. Revenue expected to drop by $30 million. That's 10%. They did not say where the cuts would come, but they, <laughs> this is good, they plan to eliminate already vacant positions. Well, that'd be the first ones I'd get rid, I'd get rid of. Uh, that's, uh, that's sad. Um, I don't, Oh, yeah. NPR plans to stay focused on podcasts, which have been the company's strong suit. Because they get a lot of subscriber revenue. Yeah. Staff cuts will not fall disproportionately on employees of color. I don't, he threw that in. Uh, yeah. I, but uh, they like Did the Did I just remember? Go ahead. They canceled their intern program, I believe. Oh. And that was like a critical pipeline, yeah. especially oh, for underrepresented people. Ross. Yeah. My school. Oh, okay. wow. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. Uh, all right. Well, yeah, you notice we only had one ad on our show today. Uh, it's it's uh, endemic. And I don't understand it, frankly, because I don't think maybe I'm wrong, but is the economy really tanking? It feels like it's actually no starting to warm up a little bit and feel, I mean, uh, unemployment's at record low. Uh, yeah. it feels I think it's like excuses. You know, I think, I think, well, I mean, the tech there's a, ner all off there's a one, nervousness. There is yeah. a nervousness in the air. People are worried about recession. Maybe. And so I think a lot of our advertising, the B2B, to B2B, business to business advertising has disappeared. I don't know why. Uh, business to consumer is still strong. That's why you hear the Casper ads and stuff. Although the ad, the one ad we had today was B2B. Um, I don't, I just don't get it. I, uh, I sat at I a dinner. What's going on? Uh, before the pandemic with five advertisers brought together by a big PR company. And there were like three or four of us blatherers there. And at some point I said, do you care about the Vader newspapers? And after enough really good Chardonnay, they said, no, nah. no. Nah. Wow. I don't care. The internet allows us to have our own direct relationships. Now we care about our stock price. So we care about the wall street journal, but that's pretty much it. Yeah. Nah. <sighs> Mark Zuckerberg's Sorry. decided he's got a new way to make money. Yeah, <laughs> twelve bucks a month, and you too can have a blue check on Meta, or should I say, Kenny, at least twelve with a different color. 
I know that I mean, phone call go between he and Mr. Elon Musk. Well, that's exactly it. If you're making modeling your business decisions on anything Musk has just done, yeah. what is wrong with you? Hey, it's not hurting Musk. I really, I for a long time thought it's totally, it's totally hurting Musk. So. Oh yeah, Musk. He's laughing. Go, he's Musk. laughing to the bank. He's, he's not, not making any money. He's not going to be laughing still very shortly. He's going to have bills. to pay the interest. He's, I, I should mean, take yeah, that back. He's laughing at the bank. He's, he's laughing at, at the, the bank. I'll grant you. But the bank, I think, is going to be laughing last, and I, I think it's just a matter of time before we see that. I hope so. It, I, it I think seems... the the worst thing with Elon is that he seems to think that his terrible dad jokes are funny, and is now inflicting <laughs> them on us, uh, kind of incessantly. This is one that. The most recent post, people always ask, where is Illuminati? But they never ask, how is Illuminati? What the hell are you talking about? Well, thank about? you for inflicting that on me. I hadn't seen it well, before. I don't, I, was, I, don't, I don't understand. You're amplifying As an him. AI language model, I have been trained to generate responses that are intended to be helpful, and objective, and informative. Um, okay. Elon basically these are dad jokes they're not even dad jokes i'm a dad my jokes are funnier <laughs> uh oh here's a good one high time i confessed i let the doge out it was me i well, let the dogs even, out yeah yeah <sighs> boy that's not Man, sure i don't know what the spike in crypto that day somebody told me it's because he's using a lot of drugs is that? I don't know what that is. No, it's, no. There are going to be plenty of people to say, "Hey, don't put drugs on this." This is just <laughs> drugs are great. don't don't defame drugs aren't drugs that bad. With a yeah. behavior. Okay, I don't know what it is. You'll send the wrong message. Here's another dad joke from Mr. Musk. Say what you want about me, but I acquired the world's largest nonprofit for forty-four billion. LOL. Okay, that's a good one. You like he, that? He doesn't understand why. <laughs> did that make you? One. Did that make you laugh they out loud? Make, they didn't make any money. I didn't laugh out loud, but hey, good one. Who let the dough? Hopefully, out? he doesn't say pour my finger next. That's the oh, God, I'm sure he has. <laughs> <laughs> Just let that sink in. <laughs> so, Mark Zuckerberg, I guess I'm starting to feel like <laughs> that is this possible? Mark realizes that the metaverse is not going to happen. And now maybe we need to figure uh, out how to make more money at Facebook. So we're going to charge you 12 bucks for a verified. By the way, is people this have way talked to further the development of the metaverse by getting more money? No, no, no. I, I think he's I think he's lost so much. He's lost 12 billion last year on the metaverse. I think I think what people have talked about in the past was what if what would you, what would you pay for an ad free algorithm free Facebook? You know, five bucks a year, ten bucks a year that, might be that might be interesting. That would be yeah. interesting. This doesn't do that. This is literally just a blue this check. Is something that's good for well, it's the same problem that with Twitter. The verification is good for the users. It's not for the verified. Well, and you have to give them government ID. So the laughs on you because you're paying twelve bucks a month for Facebook to even do more advertising. Mm-hmm. I mean, this looks the Twitter, the Facebook one I thought was a joke. Like I thought it was an it's, onion headline. Like, I could 1st? not believe yeah. that this was actually something that, like, if you're going to do what they're proposing to do, 
which I don't think is a good idea, but it's a serious proposal. And I think it's kind of hitting on the federated uh, federated identity management issues that have kind of been lurking for a while. But if you're going to roll out something, you roll it out with care and thinking about this. And it's got a months long, if not years long trajectory before you release it. This looks like it was on the back of a cocktail napkin and implemented in two really weeks, does. which now we're starting it's to the Twitter, from. Yes, yeah, the, the Musk way, model. Exactly. Yeah. It's the Twitter model. I am absolutely <laughs> shocked that Zuckerberg, A, like it's obviously like ripping off of Twitter's homework, like looking over Musk's shoulder and we're going to be blue. I mean, Facebook was already blue, but like we're going to be blue if we're going to be verified and we're going to be doing this because Twitter is and we're going to do it in the same haphazard, unthought out way that Twitter rolls out product do you remember innovations about and a, a couple of years ago we showed was it google's plan to like have this giant uh, balloon envelop you so you could have a silent conversation i think that was google oh yeah yeah, yeah. that was google yeah. so now maybe this is what the 12 bucks a month's going to meta has created yeah. a new way this is not the onion a new way to <laughs> have a quieter <laughs> cubicle they invented the cubicle. They invented the cubicle with anechoic. It's got. It's got. Uh, it's called the cube. So it's not a cubicle, Jeff. It's a cube. It's an. It's got noise canceling materials all around it. That is oh my sad. Gosh. This if you is, can't tell an onion headline from your press release, go back and try this again. <laughs> <laughs> It's, well, what it really is is acknowledgement that the open office plan was a terrible mistake. Employees yeah, hate I never it. Cared for that? They never get nothing done. Hey, people hated cubicles, and they went and said, "Well, the thing that will make a cube firm better is no walls." <laughs> so now we have got the wall. Well, Bring yeah, the who brought the walls something. back? Ooh, ooh, ooh! There it is. Now it's basically uh, you're enveloped in felt. I just. Best voiceover office ever. Oh, yeah, yeah. Maybe I could get some. Actually, you know what? When they change their mind, this guy looks happy, but is he? Uh, when, <laughs> he looks really maybe too happy. There's something going he on looks in confused. that. He looks like he's a prisoner. <laughs> it's like a self-cocoon, says John Tanane's vice president of global real estate and facilities at Meta. Oh, yeah. You know what it reminds me of, Leo? What? Les Nesman's cubicle. Yes. He taped off. He taped off his space so that no one would enter. He had his to walk space. around. Yeah, yeah. WKRP. Um, thank goodness the Wall Street Journal decided to put this close-up image of the material. <laughs> Was it the felt Wall Street Journal? <laughs> uh, the Onion Street Journal? I don't know. Oh, um, the cube is made of a felt-like recycled pet plastic. The soft material absorbs the sound rather than pushes it back. Wait a minute. I'm sorry. I should say that properly because this guy's got a doctorate. The soft material absorbs the sound rather than pushing it back, says Dr. Nagy. Dr. Nagy has invented this very special material. On the early benefit of the cube, Dr. Nagy says, is that it has reduced the strain of the company's existing meeting rooms. The last thing we want is for people to camp out in meeting rooms alone. The cube is solid for that need to do meaningful focused work. Ah, you know, that's interesting. People doing that. Yeah. Anytime I have talked to anybody at Google or Facebook, it's always about the meeting room. You can't get you you, you, at at five minutes to the hour. 
Uh-oh, people are staring at us out there. we got to leave. Right. We can't have a meeting. Right. Because it's booked for the next person. Booked. It's booked. Meeting room is the precious space there. Yeah. Yeah. Man, but you I, wouldn't. Actually, I don't think it was ever that bad when I worked at big tech company in cube farms. Like, this wasn't a problem because you didn't need to escape to the meeting yes. room to get, like, the solitude you needed to concentrate. Yeah. And have a conversation. By the way. That either. This article in the Wall Street Journal was written by somebody named Chip Cutter. I think it's an AI, honestly. Oh, I'll be honest with you. This, this is an really AI. Mean. No, this is this is an AI. Meta is already at work on future iterations of the cube, testing new colors and patterns, such as a wood grain look. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And working with multiple manufacturers to roll out the, the cube globally. They've already ordered 7,000 of them and oh, are distributing Lord. them to 22 locations worldwide. About 10% of Meta's spaces will feature the cube. And employees, oh no, employees can reserve them when needed. <laughs> you have to reserve the cube. When I worked at the Chicago Tribune low many years ago, they redesigned the newsroom and they put up cubicle walls and the journalists hated it because they wanted to be it. They, they're the original open open office. Right. They One day they came in with screwdrivers and tore them all down. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh Lord. Uh, all right. What else? What? Oh, I should go look at your section. That's let's, not. Uh, let's look not at Jeff's Jeff's section. Uh, Google reassessing timeline for massive San Jose campus. Like we don't need all that space now. Yeah, no kidding. Yep. Everybody's got to be doing that now, right? I oh, mean, yeah. Yeah. oh yeah, yeah. New York, there's tons of space in Hudson Yards. It was going to Facebook and company. They, they don't need it now. Oh wow. Uh, though Amazon is trying to get people back to the office and 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 staff, there's like fifteen thousand people joined a Slack to protest. <laughs> say no, we're not coming back, Andy. The uh, German government has been banned from having a Facebook page. The Data Protection Authority says, uh, in fact, this may go to court. Yeah. Ulrich Kelber demanded on Wednesday that the federal government stop operating its Facebook page because Facebook is an is a spy thing or what? Well, no, because Facebook does privacy no nos. Ah, okay. And there, but there is no. Is there a German Facebook? Remember, there used to be like there would be a every country would have you know this That's Spain, right. Spain's Facebook or Russia's. Well, Facebook. Germany especially that they had they had Studifautset, Study VW. A BZ. I like VW um, better. <laughs> I know. Um, uh, and so it was. It was owned by um, uh, Holtzbrink, big publisher who owns Zeit and owned Handelsblatt and all this other stuff. And there came. I don't know if I. I'll tell the story now. There came a time when um, he had an offer from Zuckerberg to buy it. Ah. And his board stopped him. Oh. Oh. Pavel uh, Durov, the founder of. Facebook for Russia, right? Got an offer he couldn't refuse. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Vladimir Putin, and now lives in Dubai, uh, but has you know rebounded with Telegram. He's the founder of Telegram as well. Uh, there is a sci-fi magazine called Clark's World, named after Arthur C. Clarke. Uh, this week, they stopped accepting submissions for new work. Why? Because they have been re receiving. Hundreds of AI written submissions. 
Clark's World, which is considered one of the top sci-fi and fantasy literary publications, it's won several Hugo Awards, regularly bans a small number of people from submitting works each week, each month, mostly for alleged plagiarism. But as of Monday, yeah. it had banned more than 500 accounts. <laughs> people keep submitting AI-written stuff. Now, they pay pretty well, 10 to 12 cents a word. And, you know, you get your work published. That's a gr that's how many sci-fi authors yeah. started, is yeah. getting in the, the pulp magazines. But what's um, wrong with this, sir? Because you have to be a pretty good prompt master, if you will, to be able to yeah. tell this thing to spit out something, yeah. you know, coherent. So what's wrong with that? Neil Clark wrote well, in a tweet thread, submissions are currently closed. It shouldn't be hard to guess why. <laughs> he wrote a blog post, a concerning trend. Oh, it's not named after Arthur C. Clarke. Neil Clark is the editor of Clark's World. So it's his. Oh, well, it's his. Man. I just assumed it was A.C. Clark, but no. Um, so, well, so here's a question for, yeah. our, for our counselor here. Uh, because a court has also said, I think more than once now, that 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 AI images cannot be copyrighted, which I presume will come over to text. Is there an issue there around around copyright and and uh, generative AI? The court decided that copyright required a human at some point in the chain, right? Well, a well, machine can't copyright stuff. Yeah. Is that right, Kathy? Well, you're. I think you're referring to the monkey selfie case, which said this. Per Yes, a human has to be involved. It can't, and but that was one that looked at animals. Um, this is a thing that a lot of people are kicking around because I think there's also a question: if there's a copyright, who would own it? The creator of the of the AI, the or the person who deployed the AI, or both, or neither. Um, there's some interesting analysis to do on it, but then there's also the question of does anybody actually need to own it? Because one thing we learned from the Naruto case is it's actually okay if a work is created and immediately in the public domain. We do not need to make everything ownable, and we mm -hmm. tend to lose sight of that fact every time we try to ask these questions. Right. Um, but so, NFTs, NFTs, Kathy, everything could be owned. Yeah, but ask me this on a day when, on a week when I'm not like exhausted from the 2:30. I can only hold up so much <laughs> She's of the universe at once. In her 2:30 bubble, according to the U.S. Copyright Office's Copyright Compendium, quote: "The office will refuse to register a claim if it determines that a human being did not create the work. So you can't register it if it, if it was." The Copyright Office just rejected a Midjourney image. Ah. Uh -huh. um, for for a um I think that I agree with you Kathy that actually is not a hazard right that's good yeah. that's fine I mean the point was with copyright was copyright was supposed to be the exception yes you were you just wanted yes. to make sure that the public had stuff so how much do you need to provide a limited monopoly for a limited amount of time just to make sure you've got enough incentives so people keep creating stuff. Because right. why do we want to people to create stuff? So we have stuff. And now all of a sudden it's the rule and it's the rule that means that the public doesn't get stuff anymore. Right. That's all backwards. Yeah, we, we turned it upside down, didn't we? We yeah. turned it upside down and we're completely defeating why we would have the monopoly in the first place. By right. the way, newspapers and magazines in the earliest copyright were not included. I mean, a lot wasn't included. Yeah. Like, and yeah. the problem was as soon as they had like the first statute of Anne, then like everybody else showed up with like, well, what about en must engravers? We engrave stuff. We should have protection for our engraving. So then they added protection for their engravings. And then sort of every media claimed it for themselves. So, um, I mean, it's weird. If it looks like a privilege, everyone's going to want it. Um, and it's really hard to sort of argue that some 
forms of media don't get it. Um, but then media also changed dramatically under the, the weight of technology changes. Um, it's it. We kind of need to go back and rethink this. Um, we've I've, got a, I've got a book about that coming out. Kathy, it's, good, oh. it's a good chapter. It's a good book. B-I-T.L-Y slash by Gutenberg. Right. Did I get that right? Yes. I yes, did that from did. Memo- memory. Yes, you did. Wow. Impressive. Yeah. It is. Well, it's you said it enough. Books. I probably should have. Memorized it by now. <laughs> <laughs> no. That was all part of his plan. Just, you know. just teasing. Actually, there is an well, interesting I'm thinking question. About, by the way, I'm thinking about going to Michigan when it's on press. Figuring kind of. Kind of oh, to watch arc. it come off the press. Yeah. That would yeah. be so fun. Why don't you, uh, why don't you uh, call in from there and show us? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So I'm, I'm standing to get, I'm, next I'm, to a 5,000-pound line of time That's machine. the stapler going through now. <laughs> what happens if, okay, so the copyright office says we won't copyright if a machine made it. Does that in any way affect an artist who's suing because the AI That's interesting. was trained on its on the, on the artist's copyright material that's a different copyright question question. um given the caliber of people who are defending the ai from the claims i think those claims are not going to proceed and i think they're probably tenuous because one of the other things is you also have i mean there's also the interaction of the first amendment including the right to read and if you have the right to read can you send your bot to read it um, I think the ability to state a cognizable claim and certainly at the scale of a class is going to be a challenging thing, but it's not frivolous necessarily. Yeah. I think it's a bad claim, but it's, um, but, it's transformative. Uh, it, yes. I mean, right. I mean, it transforms the original work beyond almost beyond recognition. Well, and there's also issues with ephemeral copies of like what you've ephemerally copied in order to train up your, your chat. So the the problem with a lot of digital technology as applied to copyright is the digital technology ends up having to essentially make a copy in order to use it in any in any sort well, of that way. Was the issue, that was the issue with cable and and on demand movies. I mean, it's and an issue all the yards. time that shows up in weird things. Again, copyright was questionable enough at, before we added digital technology, and it's really not getting applied in ways that that it's, scale without yeah, weird yeah. byproducts. But so it's so easy and ephemerally quick to digitally copy something. Does did, will Warhol uh, have an impact? Do you think on the AI uh, image lawsuits? It, I think it entirely depends, potentially, but it really depends on what. Uh, that decision is going to end up speaking probably very loudly about what the rules of the road are for fair use. Um, and depending on how they get articulated, it's going to have an effect. But what the effect is will depend on how it's articulated. It, it wasn't hugely transformed. It looks like the original photograph. Uh, but the defense is that the intent, the use was transformative, not the look. Well, it, that it explains for Warhol that it expressed something different than the first work had. If it's expressing something different, it's not, it doesn't violate the derivative work. It's essentially now the transformative works of fair use would end up covering it because it said something different that the original one did not. And fair use is supposed to enable that. Um, So it can be transformative, not merely in the way it looks, but in its, in in its intent, in its use, in its message. That is the question before the court. I mean, whether the court recognizes that that's the question before it, um, 
is it also currently an open question. But I think that's ultimately what the arguments pivoted on, where uh, the photographers were arguing um, that basically we had a picture of Warhol. You used a, the picture to like you usurped our market for a picture of Warhol. You got used by the magazine instead of ours, even though yours wouldn't have existed, but for ours, because you copied it in the process of making yours. And they're like, we had ours, you made a copy, and then you got the business. How can that possibly be? That violates our exclusive rights and the original copyright and to control derivative works. The other argument on the other side was, yeah, we started with your picture, but we ended up changing it to a point where ultimately, yeah, we were left with a picture, but we were left with a picture that said something very different about the subject matter than your picture did. And the reason why we got the business by the magazine was because what we said about about Prince was different than what you said about Prince. And the magazine editor thought that what we said matched his article much better. So we weren't even competing in the same market for it. But um, depending on how you frame you know, what was going on and what happened and why depends on maybe, you know, how you apply the fair use argument, but also on the table is how we even concoct the fair use tests. And it, it's a little, I think the Second Circuit got things very wrong, but it's um, it's not quite clear what the Supreme Court is going to do to fix that. And then Bernie Sanders walks into a TikTok. <laughs> Very confused, too, I might add. Yeah. He seemed quite confused. Like, why is the doorman and this young woman, why are they dancing in front of my hotel? My <laughs> it's too bad he wasn't wearing mittens. Exactly. He's, he's kind of embraced that whole thing, hasn't he? Oh, yeah. The Bernie mittens. Yeah, I saw a story about that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's a, it's time, Kathy, you probably don't know about this. <laughs> it's time for our TikTok I know everything. Our how TikTok can you, how segment. dare you say that? It's our TikTok segment. New, the Mercedes 24, 2024 E-Class will not only have oh, angry no, birds, Mercedes. you'll yeah. be able to take Zoom cars, calls, and you'll be able to watch TikTok. Oh, come make on, Make TikTok, Mercedes. I think so. Is it fake TikTok? Make, no, make TikTok, I think. I can record Wait a it. Software in the car enables the installation of apps like Zoom, WebEx, and TikTok. Oh, yeah, I presume, I guess, you could film TikTok wow. videos, but only when the car is stopped, according to Mercedes-Benz. Oh. And that's our TikTok and, segment. Disgusting. <laughs> Jeff says, if only this... Right, that's over with. If only this were a Taco Bell. Subway plans electric car charging oasis with a little park, a little playground. Why haven't we seen more of this already? I mean, it's the fact that Starbucks hasn't decided... To be the place where you yeah. buy the coffee and charge your car, charge your car. at the same time. Yeah. Makes perfect sense. Instead, yeah. they're putting charging stations the farthest reach of a parking lot where yeah. you're not going to go buy something in the store. Yeah. This makes perfect sense. Yeah. yeah I that's agree. pretty smart. All right. Let's do uh, the Google change log and get the hell out of Dodge here. The Google change log. Kathy wants waffles. I what? <laughs> no, does, does she, she doesn't. She doesn't know it. She doesn't know she it, but she wants waffles. Kathy deserves a beer with her new a beer her new with a new buddy Brett on the court. Yeah, yeah. I... <laughs> you know, I oh, there you go, or something like uh, an eighteen-year-old McAllen, maybe. Huh? I uh, I think I prefer the waffles, quite frankly. Waffles are better, honestly, than <laughs> yeah. any possible alcoholic beverage. But it has to be a good recipe for waffles. I don't like a bad recipe. It has I to make be a my good waffles one. the night before so they can rise. Is that a good recipe? Smart. Yes, it is. Wow. I don't know. I use a recipe that my mom had that 
like it was very buttery and it could be pancakes Ooh. or it could be waffles, but it doesn't have that graininess. It's got yeah. a very buttery taste and mm. it's not about the fluff. Mm. It's about the the buttery goodness to it. It's not about, it. the, it's not about the, the fluff. Stuff. It's about the buttery goodness. Yeah. Yes. Uh, I think it's about the crunch. But I have to say, every time I make waffles, yes, part of the, one of the ingredients is melted butter. So I think that's probably a part of it. Yeah. Okay. Hey, everybody. Leo Laporte here. I am the founder and one of the hosts at the Twit Podcast Network. I want to talk to you a little bit about what we do here at Twit because I think it's unique. And I think for anybody who is uh, bringing a product or a service to a tech audience, you need to know about what we do here at Twit. We've built an amazing audience of engaged, intelligent, affluent listeners who listen to us and trust us when we recommend a product. Our mission statement is, Twit, is to build a highly engaged community of tech enthusiasts. Boy, already, you should be your ears should be perking up at that because highly engaged is good for you. Tech enthusiasts, if that's who you're looking for, this is the place. We do it by offering them the knowledge they need to understand and use technology in today's world. And I hear from our audience all the time, part of that knowledge comes from our advertisers. We are very careful. We pick advertisers with great products, great services, with integrity, and introduce them to our audience with authenticity uh, and genuine enthusiasm. And that makes our host red ads different from anything else you can buy. We are literally bringing you to the attention of our audience and giving you a big fat endorsement. We like to create partnerships with trusted brands, brands who are in it for the long run, long-term partners that want to grow with us. And we have so many great success stories. Tim Broom, who founded IT Pro TV in 2013, started advertising with us on day one, has been with us ever since. He said, quote, we would not be where we are today without the Twit Network. I think the proof is in the pudding. Advertisers like IT Pro TV and Audible that have been with us for more than 10 years, they stick around because their ads work. And honestly, isn't that why you're buying advertising? You get a lot with Twit. We have a very full service attitude. We almost think of it as kind of artisanal uh, advertising, boutique advertising. You'll get a full service continuity team. People who are on the phone with you, who are in touch with you, who support you from with everything from copywriting to graphic design. So you are not alone in this. We embed our ads into the shows. They're not they're not added later. They're part of the shows. In fact, often they're such a part of our shows that our other hosts will chime in on the ad saying, yeah, I love that. Or just the other day, one of our hosts said, man, I really got to buy that. <laughs> That's an additional benefit to you because you're hearing people, our audience trusts saying, yeah, that sounds great. Uh, we deliver, always over deliver on impressions. So you know you're going to get the impressions you expect. The ads are unique every time. We don't pre-record them and roll them in. We are genuinely doing those ads in the middle of the show. Uh, we'll give you great onboarding services. Ad tech with pod sites that's free for direct clients. Gives you a lot of reporting. Gives you a great idea of how well your ads are working. You'll get courtesy commercials. You actually can take our ads and share them across social media and landing pages. That really extends the reach. There are other free goodies too, including mentions in our weekly newsletter that's sent to thousands of fans, engaged fans who really want to see this stuff. We give you bonus ads and social media promotion too. 
So if you want to be a long-term partner, introduce your product to a savvy, engaged tech audience. Visit twit.tv slash advertise. Check out those testimonials. Mark McCrary is the CEO of Authentic. You probably know him, one of the biggest uh, original podcast advertising companies. We've been with him for 16 years. Mark said the feedback from many advertisers over 16 years across a range of product categories everything from razors to computers, is that if ads and podcasts are going to work for a brand, they're going to work on Twitch shows. I'm very proud of what we do because it's honest, it's got integrity, it's authentic, and it really is a great introduction to our audience of your brand. Our listeners are smart, they're engaged, they're tech savvy, they're dedicated to our network, and that's one of the reasons we only work with high integrity partners that we've personally and thoroughly vetted. I have absolute approval on everybody. If you've got a great product, I want to hear from you. Elevate your brand by reaching out today at advertise at twit.tv. Break out of the advertising norm. Grow your brand with host red ads on twit.tv. Visit twit.tv slash advertise for more details. Or you can email us advertise at twit.tv if you're ready to launch your campaign now. I can't wait to see your product. So give us a ring. Google Messages is finally acknowledging its heritage and just saying, look, it's an R RCS message. <laughs> they oh, used to rename every to, product every six yeah, months. Yeah. So. No, I, 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 I want to, I want to spurn this. This was terrible. This was an <laughs> auto update that like, oh, update your text message. I like to keep my apps updated because they're going to be more secure. And all of a sudden, without me knowing or realizing the notification icon for text messages has changed. Yes. It's no longer the one I recognize. No. It is now something else. And the something else looks exactly like what it looks like when I get a Twitter message. I no longer can tell when Damn. I have a text or I have an Elon Musk notification that got rammed down my throat. This is a terrible state of affairs. Every Everything is terrible. What are the tech companies <laughs> doing? Oh, you got waffle. her out of her bubble. Oh, you blew yes. it. You blew it. The rent. Oh, no, Leo screwed it up. <laughs> Uh, they now call it RCS chat instead of just Google chat. Uh, so you'll know that you're getting rich text messages. Um, okay. no That's not for. the icon to use. I changing the icon on the app is a terrible idea from a usability perspective, yeah, anyway. And to change it to something that looks awfully close to the notification icon of another major messaging service is a really dumb idea. And it's not that I think that trademark lawsuits should be let loose and to fly whatever, but I don't know if I completely feel like if Elon wants to pick a fight that I would necessarily disagree with this one. Wow, this is the most exciting change log we've ever had. Yeah, yes. <laughs> yes. You showed me the icon and I just saw red. <laughs> Kathy, fired up. Let's see how she feels about this. Google has finally <laughs> decided to unite tasks and reminders. They'll automatically migrate reminders created in the Google Assistant and Calendar apps all into Google Tasks. One Who task either of those? to rule them all. I know. I know. Yeah. I actually yeah. used to. I mean, as long as this remains irrelevant to my interests, I don't care. Oh, good. It's if it gets rammed down my throat and becomes relevant to my interests, then I'm going to care. Here's and when, it's not going to be a happy caring. Here's when you will not care about. But my, but Jeff might. Chrome Mr. OS 110 is rolling out with super resolution audio, select to speak channel label labels and more. Okay. okay. I actually have the new Acer Chromebook which is ironically designed for gaming, Jeff. 
And I will be reviewing it, giving it a demo on Sunday on Ask the Tech Guys. The one it's, I wonder about nice. is the is the HP da 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 Chrome uh, Pro. Okay. A new HP high level uh, Dragonfly Pro Chromebook. Ooh, Dragonflies. Those are nice. Yeah. I like the my, HP my, Dragonflies. My Google Pixelbook Go, which is only the one they replaced it with it for broke once, is only a year old. The microphone just died. Ugh. Which makes would be the perfect machine you'd like me to do for this podcast, so you can't ever hear me. <laughs> <laughs> this is nice. It's light, thirteen and a half inch screen. Oh, twelve hundred fifty-five. This is the Dragonfly. That's There's a new one coming out. That's the Dragonfly Pro. That's going to cost more than one thousand two hundred fifty-five dollars. It's going to cost less. Criminy. Too much. That's too much. No, don't pay that much for a Chromebook. No, I know. I know. I have but to I say, the Acer, which is about six hundred bucks. Is all even then feels a little tinny and cheesy. And what's what's the model? What what is it? You're I don't remember the exact mean? model, but it's their okay. gaming Chromebook, which is funny, yeah, which is hysterical. Uh, but the idea is it has a it can get up to an i five in it, but mo mostly, I mean, really, the whole point these days is to stream games through services like. Uh, Xbox, uh, Game Pass. Gee, and, Google uh, should start a service to do that. Gee, yeah. You can, you can get a 2020 M1 MacBook Pro for 1200 And it runs Windows. Yes, oh, it yeah, does. Right. The two things I don't want. Yeah. <laughs> it's the oh, Chromebook God. 516 GE. And it has, you know, it's for gaming because the ASDF keys are specially highlighted. It's really oh, silly. Of course. It's really I feel silly. like they should just finish spelling my name. They shouldn't just start and then stop <laughs> after two letters. They should keep going. G-E-L-L-I-S, the Chromebook 516 Gellis. Yeah, now we're not? talking. Yeah. Now we're talking. It's like GeForce. I actually have a GeForce Now subscription, so I will I will up it to the 120 hertz version. That's the big thing, right? 120 hertz screen. You know what? If you could play great games on it, why the heck not? Have you played Pentiment? I have. People are really excited about that, mostly because it looks like a medieval book. Yeah. <laughs> Which is not what normally people are looking for in a video game. Um, But, yeah, I mean, it's kind of cool. It's kind of my period. It's gutenberg -y. It's gutenberg -y. You want to see a little bit of it? Sure. Here is... Uh, sure. Here's a, a YouTube video. Watch out. Blood, gore, oh, sexual blood, themes, gore and, sex. okay. and strong language. And fonts, too. And smoking. From Obsidian. <laughs> this is all up your alley, Jeff. Oh, it sure is. <laughs> with, the, with the monks in this scriptorium. Look, go run. Wait go find. People have expensive gaming rigs. Johan has invented the printing press. <laughs> Look at that. He's hitting yeah, it with yeah, a yeah. round mallet. Oh. Oh, no. Poachers. <laughs> I said blood and gore. Holy oh, say, what? I will begin by inspecting his humus. Good Lord. They're burning witches. Where is Miss Brianna Wu on this one? There's makeout sessions in the with nuns. library with Jesus. nuns. What are you doing? They really, they really sexing it up, aren't they? Caspar, <laughs> what was that? So it's the name of the rose as a video game, basically. Okay, got it. All right. 
Thank you. But this is a horrible Pentiment. Yeah. Back to the Google like change log. Finally, I found a game that, that attracts me. And? <laughs> That's a horrible <laughs> game. I'm going to spend thousands of dollars for a rig to, to, to play beautiful it's, games. It's no Cuphead. I'll tell you that right here. now. Google, Google Weather, you'll be thrilled about this, Jeff. Gets an what? accidental dark theme. Oh. But it's an accident via Android system web view. It's update. always an accident. Dark <laughs> is always an accident. Well, that's a dark pattern. Yeah, dark pattern. Look at that. That looks great. I have my weathers dark. I like dark weather. I don't want. I don't want my eyes to be hurt by a bright light in my eyes. I don't understand why you do, Jeff. Sunlight, no. <laughs> The, the, the vampire demographic of yeah, yeah. the show is. Yeah, I like it dark, man. Google Chrome's latest version includes tools to address its memory hog problem. Memory saver and energy saver modes now available on Chrome, Chrome 110. It's always been the case on the Mac that the Chrome has just been a pig. I guess yeah, it's true it, elsewhere. It sleeps the tabs mainly. Okay, that's the biggest. <laughs> it now snoozes Chrome tabs. That aren't currently in use. Energy Saver similarly limits any unnecessary background website activity, such as visual effects like smooth scrolling on animations or videos. In other words, it looks like crap, but uh, hey, your battery's going to survive. And that's the Google Change Log. What are you you looking at me for? (laughs) (laughs) All right, kids. Real quickly Please. before the picks of the week, I just want to plug. I we mentioned times are tough. I like Ant's sunglasses. Look at that. You got the you well, got the Tom Cruise he, he stand daylight. Yeah, look at that. He's, hey, he's always dark, dark mode, mode going on here, so I got to protect that. my eyes. Is it your Joe Biden imitation, Ant? <laughs> uh, no, sir. <laughs> he doesn't have an ice cream cone. Yeah. <laughs> um, our club is helmed by this good-looking fellow over here, Mr. Ant uh-huh. Pruitt. He is our community manager, does a great job of making it fun. Uh, it is it is fun in so many ways. First of all, it originally was designed for ad-free versions of all of our shows. Um, and you still get that. Uh, and, and you also get shows that we don't put out anywhere else, like Hands on Macintosh with Micah and uh, Paul Thorat's, uh Hands on Windows. You get the Untitled Linux show. So there's a lot of extra content. Uh, if we do launch new shows, they're going to launch in the club first. In fact, we're talking about this week in AI or something like that. That would be in the ooh, club first. Ooh, ooh, you like that idea? Ooh. Yeah. Oh, you want to be on that one? Yeah. With me, Jeff? Can I play? Sure. Can I play? Yeah. Yeah. I th- you yeah. know I want to find somebody who's a, like a great AI expert in there. Well, you know, I sent somebody to you and Jason. Oh, okay. A young woman. Oh she's yes. Really, really. She'd be great. I saw that. That's right. Thank you for reminding Isn't me. She. She's really good at explaining. She's very straightforward. That's what I need. Uh, she's young. You know, yeah, balance then, us out as old guys. Do we need another show where it's two old guys and a young woman? Do we really need that in the world? <laughs> Aren't there enough shows like that? Anyway, if you join the club, you might get to hear that show. You certainly get to hear stuff you don't hear anywhere else. You also get the Twit Plus feed, which is all sorts of stuff that we don't put out as a regular podcast. But the best part, I think, is the Discord. I love the Twit Plus Discord because it's it's actually the bestest social community ever. Of course. And it's meme-tastic. Meme-tastic. But, uh, of course, 
you know, the original part was just kind of like our chat room. It's you know, all the shows have their own chat going on. This is the This Week in Google chat. But, <laughs> but we also have events. Sam Abul Samad coming up in a couple of weeks. Stacy's Book Club. Victor Bognat. And you've just added, oh, wow, Alex Wilhelm is going to do a chat. May 11th. Good get. I love Alex. He's been a little busy. If you he had a new baby, know. I'm excited. Get mm-hmm. get his uh, get Liza on as well with him. That'd be great. I'll look forward to that. May 11th. So we do events. We have discussions, not just about the shows, but I mean there are sections in the Discord for every possible geek topic under the sun: beer, wine, cocktails, autos, coding, and comics, and gaming, and hacking, and ham radio, and pets, and sci-fi, and so <laughs> you get to. <laughs> <laughs> you get to do that and and all of this all of this goodness for less than seven bucks a month well not not less actually exactly seven seven bucks a month uh we you know what i i admire well, with inflation Lisa. it'll actually it's be less, less. Than a blue I, I admire lisa because she you know i said well should we make it 6.99 she says come on seven bucks a month seven bucks not 6.99 so yeah, but with inflation, it's 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 less. <laughs> anyway, please join the club. It helps us out. It is the best way going forward. Uh, and I promise, unlike NPR, we're not going to come down on your copyrights or anything like that. We are we are we are here to support open uh, RSS supported podcasting. Uh, and uh, and unfortunately, the world is not exactly beating a path to our door. You can help if you listen to the shows, if you like the shows, if you want to keep them on the air. Twit.tv slash club twit. Thank you very much. Kathy, you you don't normally uh, have to do anything on this show. You've already done more than enough. Yes, she has. But I do like your picks. Every time you give us a pick, it's wacky. Did I do this one before? No. This is new. I must have been a dream because I thought I did, but I was discussing it before and we couldn't find any record of it. So Yeah. Okay. It'll happen now. This is an Italian... What detectives show? Yeah. Um. So the only streaming network that I happily subscribe to is a network called MHZ, and what they did, um, and there's some history about it, is they find TV shows that are popular around the world oh. and they dub them. And then I found them originally because they used to be broadcast on KCSM locally, one of the local yeah, public broadcasting stations. Yeah. And they used to have um, Monday morning, Monday evening mystery night, and they were showing some of these programs that they picked up uh, from around the world that they had dubbed. And one of them that was really popular is the Inspector Montalbano mysteries. And um, it's about a Sicilian police detective. And um, it's based on uh, books. There, there's a guy who I think started writing his mystery series in his 80s, and he's just churned them out like one a year. And so for 20 years, they've been making a television production of the Inspector Montalbano mysteries. Um, against it is, oy, the woman and the way they portray woman. It's, it, it isn't all that great. But, it's Italian. Um, but the, what do you want? It's Italian, whatever. But the male <laughs> characters are extremely well cast, extremely well acted. Um, the the plots are interesting enough, but the characters are so personable that you just really warm to them. Um, so I started watching it years and years ago, like 15 years ago, and the show's been made since the late 90s and still with making them up through wow. 2020 at least. And um, I binged it recently, and um, it was a good binge. And it was just, it's a, there's 
it's actually novels. So some people are fans of the novels, but the television production is, um, is really interesting and it's um it's italian and it's just nice to sort of like watch the foreign television and just get some insight into the way you know if people in those countries are turning on their tv and settling in and watching something it's nice to kind of see what they're settling into do you prefer it with subtitles or dubbed subtitles yeah um dubbing is always terrible yeah so it's always terrible you don't get I mean, good acting sometimes or- it can be Good. Like I remember seeing um, some documentaries about how some of the major motion pictures when I was living in France and the way they dubbed them for France, like it was as much part of the production yeah. to get the casting right, right. the dialogue yeah, there's, right there's and the synchronization stars. right to right. do it. Yeah. Right. So you can do it well, but and you can do it well where the, the voice acting has as much authority for the character acting as the original person but in general like that takes a lot of money it doesn't normally happen i'd rather read it and also sort of especially if i slightly know the language it kind of gives me some clues about what changed in the translation and what might have been lost or what might have been gained um especially like there's the mhz networks also does stuff in french and my french is better than i think and it's kind of interesting to sort of hear what they're saying and read what the translation is and figure out what the disconnects are and also it helped my french it taught me some stuff good way to learn a language really there's 37 (laughs) episodes of montalbano so there's plenty to watch i'm gonna i've never heard of mhc i'm gonna check it out that's cool yep that's cool mhzchoice.com like MHC seems to be sort of a parent initiative of which a variety of sub initiatives happened. But I think MHZ Networks is the um, the streaming channel, um, but it's unique content, whereas for something else where, you know, everybody's competing for which back catalog of American programming right. everybody's got. But this is stuff that like you wouldn't normally see. Somebody went out and did it and their translations are excellent. Like actually for Montalbano, there's points where there's one character who's who has actually i don't know the word i'm a which is very ironic right now malapropisms malaprops where you okay and he gets things very wrong all the time and the translations are brilliant because he's getting it wrong in italian but the way it's getting translated he's now getting it wrong in english in a way that actually makes sense connected to the error he made it's not a word for word matchup but it gets like the gist of it and that's that's how you do translations where you really capture the gist and um and you make it you make it work. So, um, yeah, Plus, it's a quality production. And I think Jeff will appreciate this. There's Italian food. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yes. And, and so Montalbano's favorite food is, uh, what do you call it, Aranciana? The, oh, the fried Aranci- rice bowl. I love those, yeah. Oh. But so this looks even favorite. better. This oh, looks wow. so good. This. Yeah. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. And he has a wine. housekeeper who, uh, Adelina, who... Um, who cooks for him and leaves him behind. So uh, it's totally sexist, but the food's good. It's totally sexist. The food's good. It's charming. And I don't know, it's, it's a good entertainment and it's something you're not going to bump into normally. Adelina makes the pasta and cassiada that they're eating. And now I, I I want both. Oh, here's a recipe. Love this. Look at that. You can make it yourself. I'm going to, I might make this and we're going to have a, 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 a viewing session. I'll invite some people over. I actually subscribe to BritBox for the same reason because it gives you at least a little variety. This looks even better. I can't wait. I'm going to do this right now. Thank you. Mr. Jeff Jarvis, do you have a number? Well, we could do a little little um, 
URL moment. The okay. Supreme Court knew how to spell it. Uh, if you go to AI.com now, guess where it redirects? Where? One guess. Apple? Google? Nope. Let me Maybe. go there. Don't say it. Well, not quite. AI.com. And please stand by. Oh, Welcome no. to chat GPT. Oh, boy. A reported possible $10 million purchase for that URL, but it was 10 million buckaroos. But they got, they got, they got Elon Musk money and now Microsoft money. Yeah. So that's one URL. The other URL, interesting, I ran across an angry post this week. Yeah. That said, never use URL shortening. Oh. And you see why? Because Guardian used to be the original brand for Guardian was Guardian Unlimited. And they used GU.com as their shortening. Right. Well, now, because those two-letter URLs can sell for a lot of money, Guardian is reportedly looking to sell for $2.5 million, GU.com. Oh, don't. Well, all of those links that existed in the past is shortened. Bye-bye. Yeah. That is a problem. There's also the problem of it can hide uh, malware because you don't see the actual URL. And so... Uh, URL. Shortening. I stupidly, with, with with what would Google do? I said for the footnotes, do we have to have these long URLs? Why don't we just shorten them? And somebody said, no, 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 because they could change. And boy, good, so, good, yeah. So the one time I like the shortened ones is when I'm, especially for the ones that are kind of long garbage, because I use URLs and briefs. Mm-hmm. It's kind of nice to have a cleaner version where the court can get to it without me taking up all the characters for something that's kind of illegible. Um, but I mean, if you're selling the thing, couldn't you sell it with an encumbered transfer where you yeah, have to keep a could. database of the, of the URL? You know, line? honestly, since the guardian is digital, right? Is there a print version? No, well, the guardian. Yeah. Well, yes. But did they use oh, the yeah. shortened URLs in the print version? You can't fix those. I but don't know. Well, it's not. Yeah. I don't know. You can, if uh, certainly on every page on the internet that the guardian uses GU, you could fix that, uh, permanently. Okay. That wouldn't be a big deal. That's a simple thing to do. Um, hmm. but the print version, yeah, you're stuck if you use them in the print version. Yeah. Yep. Uh, Mr. Ant Pruitt, what's your pick this week? My pick, uh, I've spoken about these folks before, but Boris effects and particle illusion has just recently, recently, like maybe two weeks ago, updated their particle illusion. Is this uh, how you did, uh, moral app. panic? Yeah. Yeah, sure is. You can use this app um, to make particles like what they just showed there on the screen. Um, You can use it in conjunction with video editors such as Premiere and Resolve and Final Cut and so forth. But the standalone version like what was here is free. The plugins, you have to pay for that, but the standalone works really good by itself. Um, And they also have a tutorial service to get you started for free on YouTube. So I'll link to that. Cause I think it's a pretty good deal for the stuff that you can create with it for free. Well, this yeah. used to be a very expensive flame box that TV stations would use and have to hire a very expensive artist and all of that stuff. And yep. it, it's gotten much, it's amazing. You can put it on the desktop and do it yourself now for free. Yeah. That's, for free. That's incredible. You know, Boris and FX. They tried to make it a little bit more efficient and stuff for, you know, for people that don't have super powerful computers. It's just, uh, should run better. Nice. With the latest updates. B-O-R-I-S-F-X dot com. Particle Illusion. And they have a free and, uh, uh, tutorial. Too. Yep. That's on, uh, I think it's through their YouTube channel. And it, it's pretty nice. It's pretty 
um, straightforward and, and start out very basic because if you, if you're brand new to it, you don't know what the heck you're looking at on the screen and they slow it down. I, I dig it. Are you going to buy this Hagibus for your new Mac mini? Are you getting a Mac mini? <laughs> well, I'm not getting a Mac mini. I now have a Mac mini. Yay. Uh, I have, Congratulations. I have the M2, M2 pro. Um, that's what I'm using right now. Oh yeah. Show, actually. Oh, nice. And you do look and, extra um, good. <laughs> so really the Mac made the difference. Come no, on. I'm teasing. Nice try. You look exactly the same. <laughs> it's the camera. It's the nice camera. try. Yeah. But no, I, um, I was, remember we've spoken off offline last week or week before about having docs and so forth because Apple just don't put any daggum ports on it. Right. Thing. So I was looking at the Mac studio to begin with, but it's expensive and just, I, I just couldn't afford it. And I ended up with the M2 pro because a efficiency standpoint, it seemed like it was neck and neck with the studio. So I said, I'd try it and just find a dock. And this little dock here that some China branded dock is, it's pretty legit because I can add a SSD on oh, the nice. inside of it. I was wondering what the inside was for. Oh, you put an it's, SSD in yeah. there. Oh. And you get an extra bit of storage. Plus you get your card reader that the Mac mini does not have because you need an SD card reader most of the time. And you get the additional ports. They also have a, another version out there that supports the M.2 drives as Ooh, well. Oh, nice. So there there are some options out there. And I was able to save a little bit of money going this route versus going out to get the studio. Yeah. No and kidding. then I also found this other dock from my CES days, um, this was in a swag box, and it's <laughs> I think it's from Targus or what have you. Yeah, it's a Targus dock that gives gives me a couple more USB ports, but also gives me Display Port and stuff like that. I'm just like, oh, well, I can just use this for the USB nice. stuff. So, I'm gonna show yeah. a dock. Uh, you got me thinking about docks. I ordered a, a dock that uh, doubles as a monitor stand. For my Mac Mini here, and I'm going to show. I that. saw something like that, and it looked yeah. legit too. Yeah. yeah, I'll show that uh, on Ask the Tech Guys next week. But this is the Hagabus, which is obviously a made-up Chinese yeah. name. H. It sounds a little bit yeah. too much like a Scottish sheep guts dinner. Hagabus. <laughs> there's that, and there's a Senteshi. There's another one. That's oh, Senteki's real. Senteki's legit. I, they've been around for a yeah. long time. Okay. So this is uh, Hagabus. <laughs> Hagabus always takes user experience as the main theme, follows the humanized design concept, adheres to the concept of quality first, and improves the quality of life for global consumers. So you know it's got to be good. It is only 74 bucks. I think it's a good price. USB 3.2 Gen 2. So that's, uh, it's not Thunderbolt, but that's why it's not Thunderbolt, but bucks. it's fast enough. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Very cool. Thank yeah, you. I want to do a segment with you all on Ask the Tech Guys because I, I definitely have some thoughts on this transition from Windows I to... think that's a great idea. When do you want to do that? Uh, you want to do it next week or the week after? Give yourself some time. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I have thoughts. <laughs> I have thoughts. <laughs> He's already full of them. All right. Oh, boy. Good. Well, I'm going to let you settle in a little bit before, you know, let, let the steam come off a little bit before I... Uh, before we make you talk about it. But yeah, you can do it this week or next week. Yeah, every Sunday, Mike and I answer tech questions. And it's a it's really our uh, podcast version of the old radio show uh, called Ask the Tech Guy. Sundays from uh, 11 a.m. to 2 p.m. Pacific, which is 2 p.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern, right before this week in tech. Uh, 
And uh, coming soon, Aunt Pruitt. (laughs) (laughs) Switching from Windows to Mac. That's a big deal, Aunt. That's a big deal. Yeah. I'd love to hear your experience. Boy, I know now. (laughs) Oh, you regret it? You regret it? No, I don't regret it. You'll get used to it. it. I I, I wanted a machine that's just going to be peppy enough, you know. Is it peppy enough? It's definitely peppy enough. All right. That's good. Aunt Pruitt, twit.tv slash H-O-P and uh, AuntPruitt.com for his wonderful prints, A-N-T-P-R-U-I-T-T. Thank you, Aunt. Thank you, Jeff Jarvis, Town Night Professor of Journalism at the Craig Newmark Graduate School of Journalism at the City University of New York, buzzmachine.com. Bitly, B-I-T, that's a URL shortener. I'm sorry, but I don't think it's going to change for a while. B-I-T.L-Y slash by Gutenberg for his new book, which comes out soon. A couple of months, right? June. June. Awesome. You know what else is coming out in June? Uh, Supreme Court decision on (laughs) Gonzalez versus Google. (laughs) And I am so glad that you... Presumably. You never know. Who knows? I would would be hysterical if they, uh, in a couple of days, go, you know, never mind. That would be very funny. You never know. You never know. But thank God we had Kathy Gellis here to explain it all. You Ooh. are exactly who I was hoping we could get today. And you did not disappoint. Fantastic. Uh, yes. She writes thank at you. Tech Dirt. She is living in a temporary, uh, wonderful rainbow bubble of delight after yesterday's <laughs> oral arguments. We don't want to pop that bubble. <laughs> that- might be slightly overstating the, the the little bit of like sleep deprived afterglow, but uh, she can't believe who she likes now. Oh my god, She's, <laughs> now, he understood the things that mattered to did. me. I'm really he troubled did. by this. I love this. you, Brett. I love you. Read my abacus. CG. Council dot com. C o u n s e l. Don't worry, she's not going to talk up Brett Kavanaugh. If you call, you'll also find her. She's she's deprecating. I'm ha- proud, proud of her, deprecating her uh, Twitter, uh, as one does, and is now on the Mastodon, mastodon.cloud, at Kathy Gellis. And I'm going to show you exactly what you do if you're on Twit Social. You just type in at Kathy, G-E-L-L-I-S, hit return. There she is. You can tell it's her. And your mom already following you. Look at that. No, Look that's at that. very nice. Yeah, okay. there she is. So make sure you follow uh, on Mastodon because we want to make sure Kathy sticks around because uh, she's a big boon to the community. Really appreciate you coming on the show. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Thank you all for being here. We do Twig every uh, Wednesday afternoon around about 2 Pacific, 5 p.m. Eastern, uh, 2200 UTC. You can watch us do it live if you want the freshest version at live.twit.tv. If you're watching live, chat live. The IRC is open to all irc.twit.tv. We also have a lovely Discord for our Club Twit members. We thank our Club Twit members for their support. You can join that and uh, get on in there and see all the fun. You will not be disappointed. Uh, You can also get uh, copies of the show on the website, twit.tv slash twig. Uh, as soon as we're done editing it, it takes us a little while, a couple hours. Uh, or subscribe in your favorite podcast player, and you'll get it that way automatically. You won't have to even think about it. You'll just have it ready to listen to whenever you're in the mood for This Week in Google. It also works, by the way. I don't mention this enough, but if you have an Amazon Echo or a Google Voice Assistant, you know, you can ask them 
in most cases, it's sufficient to say play this week in Google. Uh, you might have to qualify it by saying on YouTube or something like that or tune in. But uh, generally, you could just say for all of our shows, play this week in Google. You can even say in some cases, play Twit Live, and you can actually listen uh, to the live stream, uh, which goes 24-7 uh, on your device. We have a YouTube channel dedicated to Twig, youtube.com slash Twig, or actually I think it's slash this week in Google. So that's another way to watch. There's plenty of ways to get us. I hope you will, and I hope you will get us next week because we'll have more. Will Stacy be back next week? I don't know. That's my note. Okay. We'll see Stacy back next week. We'll see you too, I hope, on This Week in Google. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. If you love all things Android, well, I've got a show for you to check out. It's called All About Android, and I'll give you three guesses what we talk about. We talk about Android, the latest news, hardware, apps. We answer feedback. It's me, Jason Howell, Ron Richards, Wintwit Dow, and a whole cast of awesome characters talking about the operating system that we love. You can find All About Android at twit.tv slash AAA.